0: This is CNN Breaking News.
1: Breaking news here on CNN. Iran set to release five American prisoners at any moment. Right now, a jet is on standby to bring them from Tehran to Qatar. Under this deal, the U.S. has unfrozen $6 billion in Iranian money that is supposed to only be used for humanitarian purposes.
2: The U.S. is also releasing five Iranians from prison. Two of them are apparently planning to stay in America. Becky Anderson is live on the tarmac in Doha. Uh, Becky, this has been months of negotiations to lead to this point. Where do things stand right now where you sit?
3: Well, it should be the end of uh, what has been a years-long nightmare for these five dual Iranian-American citizens who have been held uh, in Iran um, and are uh, due for release today. Uh, expected to be delivered to the airport any now to board that Qatari jet, which is sitting on the tarmac. The Qataris have mediated this deal over months, being a friendly nation with both the US and Tehran. Of course, there are no di- direct negotiations between Washington and Tehran. Uh, once those uh, hostages are on the flight, and wheels are up. It is about a two-hour flight to Doha here in Qatar. And they will um, land on the tarmac behind me here to be met by the American negotiation team. But nothing is a done deal until it is a done deal, of course. We've been through these negotiations, these, these swaps, these exchanges in the past. And any small thing can really hold things up. But let's just consider what this deal Is all about. As you rightly said, uh, these uh, hostages, these wrongfully detained American citizens, will be swapped out for five Iranians in US prisons, although two of them have said they want to stay in the US. One is going to a third country, so only two of them will be returned to Iran. And the uh, exchange, the unfreezing of $6 billion worth of Iranian cash, which under US sanctions, has been frozen in a South Korean bank account until now. The negotiation has been that that money uh, will be wired effectively, sanctions free, to the Qatar central bank, who will act as a guarantor as the Iranians are given it to spend. That is what the Qataris have been doing in all of what is a very complex and complicated deal. So who are these prisoners? Well, we know three of five of them, Siamad Namazi um, is an a American-Iranian businessman. He's 51 years old. He was originally detained back in 2015 and then charged with acting um, with a hostile state, that being uh, the US, in 2016 and imprisoned uh, for 10 years. Emad, uh, uh, who is uh, also... A businessman, Ahmad Shaghi, uh, actually went home with his wife to Iran. He's a dual citizen, went home with his wife in 2017, uh, arrested and charged in 2018 um, on espionage charges. And then Marad Tabaz, um, who is an environmentalist and also uh, detained and charged on espionage charges back in 2018. Siamak, do the math has been inside uh, the notorious Evan prison for nearly eight years. And at times, and through an unprecedented live interview on CNN just this year, appealed to the uh, Biden administration to get him and the others out and said he had felt like he had been left behind in what have been a series of exchanges uh, over the years through the Obama and Trump administration. Bottom line... Those uh, prisoners, those hostages have not left Tehran as of yet. We are expecting to see them or be told that they will be on that flight, uh, the Qatari jet on the ground uh, very soon, from which it is about a two-hour flight here to Doha. Back to you guys. Becky Anderson with all
1: the reporting on the ground. They're awaiting that plane that has not taken off. Becky, we'll get back to you very shortly.
2: And joining us now, CNN's chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour, who conducted that remarkable interview with Sia that Becky was just referring to. Before we dig into details and probably go back to some of your interview, uh, your initial thoughts as this has started to think, come together.
4: Well, we were hoping that this would already be further along. There was indications that, you know, several hours ago that the plane would have left Iran and come to Doha. As we're hearing, it hasn't yet. So we have to ask what exactly is going on. It could just be bureaucracy. It could, you know, this all hinges for the Iranians always around the money. So has the money got there yet, has it not? We just just have to wait and see and not count our chickens before they actually hatch. But overall, the deal is to give the Iranians the money they say they're owed by South Korea for selling $6 billion worth of oil uh, many years ago then there will be a prisoner swap. The Iranians told me that that involves five, uh, you know, Iranians imprisoned here for those Americans in Iran. Uh, And they said that, you know, all the charges against the Americans will be dropped. I mean, as you know, the charges were completely specious, completely made up. They were accused of acting with a hostile power. Well, that hostile power was their own country. They were business people. They were environmentalists. So it's a complete nonsense. And it's just because they were American citizens. And yes, I talked to Siamak, um, and I've known him before uh, in the early 2000s. And he basically said that he had to call out of Evin because he was desperate and that many times he had been left behind in previous U.S. prisoner swaps.
1: Let take a look. Let's yes. have everyone
4: listen to part of that interview. Here it
1: is.
5: I think the very fact that I've chosen to take this risk and appear on CNN from Evin from prison, it should just tell you how dire my situation has become uh, by this point. I've been a hostage for seven and a half years now. I've, um, That's six times the duration of the hostage crisis. I keep getting told um, that I'm going to be rescued uh, and deals fall apart or I get left abandoned. Um, Honestly, the other hostages and I desperately need President Biden to finally hear us out, to finally hear our cry for help and bring us home. And I suppose desperate times call for desperate measures. So this is a desperate
4: measure. Nearly eight years, Christian. Yes, he was arrested in October of 2015, um, you know, during one of his business trips to Iran. But I think very importantly also... You know, other administrations have... Many administrations have done these deals to get back wrongfully detained Americans. And for Siamak himself, uh, I just... You know, it's just hard to imagine, and he will have to process this and ask questions when he gets out. Why was he left behind under the Obama administration swap? They got Jason Rezaian out. They didn't get him out. Why was he left behind twice by President Trump when he did prisoner swap deals? You know, was it too hard? Why? And so that's why he took this incredible risk of calling me from Evian in prison. I mean, it's just never happened before. To that point, though, what were the repercussions... Because well, I think that I asked, was
2: the open question when this aired. Is so right.
4: extraordinary. But you realized we don't know what's going to happen to him. That's right. And for me, that really caused me to think about whether I should do this. What was my responsibility mm-hmm. um, in, for an imprisoned person who wasn't in control of his own environment? But fortunately, he did not get. Uh, he did not get you know, badly reprimanded. He did have actual phone privileges, if you could call them that, at that time because of the length of time he had spent in, in prison. He was able to talk, I believe, to family and certainly his, his lawyer. And um, and and he talked to me. And, you know, obviously he was begging to get out. He was talking about, you know, wanting the, a deal to be done. So I guess the Iranians thought, well, that's that's good for us too. But...
1: Part of this deal is not only the release of those five Iranians, which is just fascinating that two are going to stay here in the United States, but also $6 billion of Iranian money Mm -hmm. and this transfer from Switzerland and Qatar. It's notable that Iran's president said last week to NBC, humanitarian means whatever the Iranian people need. The U.S. is saying... This will only go toward humanitarian purposes in Iran. What do you say to the Iranian president's remarks?
4: Well, the Iranian president is in uh, New York, and hopefully he, you know, people will be able to explain to him what the deal is if he doesn't quite get it yet. It is going into an escrow account into Qatar, as far as we know, as far as the United States and others have told us, and the Qataris have told us, and they will be able to determine what exactly Iran gets to use. And it's apparently meant to be mostly medicine, food, and the like. And the United States, as far as I was told, will have sort of an eyes-on via the Treasury Secretary – Uh, Treasury Department. So it's very important if the president of Iran thinks that he can use this stuff for other, he needs to be reminded of not. But right now, it's very important that the money gets there so that these actual hostages who've been there for eight years or so can actually leave Iran. Yeah, it's a critical point. The puzzle pieces kind of have to go together to actually get the and, and please on the let's not forget that every administration has done this. This is not just a democratic administration. Republicans mm-hmm. and Democrats and the Brits and the French and the Belgians, and that, because that is what Iran does. It takes the citizens, and then it says, we want our money back.
2: Right. All right, Christian, stay close. We're going to be, keep going back to you throughout the course of the hour as we continue to follow this. This obviously is a big story, and we are still waiting uh, for that plane to be wheels up and for us to get our first look at these uh, five Americans who will be transferred back home to the United States today. Now, negotiations are set to also resume today and other major news as auto workers continue their historic strike against all of the big three. Automakers, what the union is demanding? We're going to take a look.
1: Also, House Republicans have come up, some House Republicans, with a deal to prevent a government shutdown, but it could be dead on arrival. Reporting from Washington ahead as well. In 27 years, I think I need a
6: raise. I think I deserve a raise. I work hard. I've been working in the paint department. I'm a team leader. And I make what
1: some bus drivers make. And I'm here helping people get from one place to another. Well, this morning, negotiations will resume as the United Auto Workers Union's unprecedented strike against all three big automakers at the same time enters day four. The union and the automakers are going to return to the bargaining table they did over the weekend. Still no resolution achieved. The strike currently involves less than nine percent of the union members, but more workers could go on strike. At any moment, our Vanessa Yurkevich live in Wayne, Michigan, following all of this. You've been on top of this before the strike, the day of the strike. Now it's day four. What are we expecting?
7: Yeah, well, here this morning, we are seeing a group of UAW members on strike, walking the picket line in a circle. They are out here at the direction of union leadership. But now what you have is folks on the picket line, but then you have folks trying to come to work, but not able to get in to the facility. So you have some cars lined up, you have some trucks lined up, and then you have cops police officers who just actually moved a huge group of cars and trucks to another entrance to try to get them into the Ford facility. We heard this may be happening in previous days, but we're seeing it play out live today. Uh, just to update you on negotiations, guys, uh, we had Ford at the main bargaining table on Saturday, General Motors yesterday, and Stellantis will be at the main bargaining table today. Negotiations are ongoing. That is certainly good news, but no deal in sight yet. The, the Sides are still pretty far apart, especially on those key wages. We also know that President Biden has directed Acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue and Senior White House Advisor Gene Sperling to come to town, to come to Detroit, to try to help move these negotiations forward towards a deal. We know that UAW President Sean Fain does not want the administration involved in these negotiations. Also on our radar, Poppy, is Across the border in Canada, the Union Unifor, which represents over 5,000 Ford workers, could head on strike as soon as tonight if they do not reach a deal with Ford. That could obviously exacerbate the situation for Ford, who has three plants in Canada that is producing Quite a few of their vehicles. So we're dealing with a strike on the U.S. side of the border and then possibly by 11.59 this evening, if they don't reach a deal with Ford, the Canadian union, another strike that Ford will be dealing with. Poppy? And Vanessa, are the
1: demands from the union in Canada the same as what the UAW is asking Ford for? Or is it a whole different set of asks?
7: Certainly. We actually don't know what the demands are. We have asked both the union and Ford what the Mm -hmm. demands are in Canada. They're not really revealing uh, what they're asking for. But we have heard that it is along the same lines. Higher wages, better benefits, sort of the same thing in in the same vein as what the the UAW here is asking. But no specifics just yet. Understood. Vanessa Yurkiewicz live for us in Wayne, Michigan. Thank you
1: so much. Phil.
2: Thanks, Poppy. It is now, well, you can just look at it, 12 days and 18 hours to go until a potential government shutdown. So the big question, as it always is in these moments, is Congress any closer to a deal? Well, there were rumblings of a House Republican agreement last night. But after a call, internal call between the conference members, that deal appears to be dead on arrival. Meanwhile, the House also tried to pass a standalone defense spending bill, but it was paused last week before it even made it to the floor. Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to stand up to those hardline Republicans, saying it's getting a vote either way. And we'll bring it to the floor, win or lose, and show the American public who's for the Department of Defense, who's for our military, who's for giving them a pay raise and making sure we can take the wokeism out. Some people say you should shut down. But think about this. I've been through shutdowns, and I've never seen somebody win a shutdown. Because when you shut down, you give all your power to, to the administration. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us now. Lauren, to that point, you've been through several shutdowns. I think Speaker McCarthy's assessment of things analysis is pretty accurate based on historic precedent. There's a lot of talk about a potential deal this weekend for House Republicans. What happened?
8: Yeah, that deal was very short-lived, Phil. It was a deal that was negotiated by members of the House Freedom Caucus and the Main Street Caucus, but it was a deal that really didn't have broad broad Republican support. And you started to see that on the Republican conference call as member after member started to raise concerns. And then you saw on Twitter while the call was going on that a number of members came out just opposed to it straight up. That shows you the challenge that Kevin McCarthy has. They were hoping to put That spending bill, that short term spending bill, we should clarify, Phil, on the floor as soon as Thursday. But it is going to be an extremely heavy lift to get the votes needed. Right now, you have more than a dozen conservatives who say that they are either opposed or are leaning against voting for that measure. And that is just a short term solution from one part of the Congress, one chamber, one party, Phil. That is not going to avoid a government shutdown. Whatever the House Republicans came up with, on this short-term spending bill was never going to pass muster in the United States Senate. So there's a huge question right now of how Kevin McCarthy threads this needle, but also how Republicans and Democrats in Congress are going to come together to avoid a shutdown. There really doesn't seem to be at this moment a path forward. And I've covered many, many of these showdowns in the past. And one of the differences here is you have so many members in McCarthy's conference who just don't seem that afraid of a government shutdown. And if you're not afraid of a government shutdown, what is the motivation to come to the negotiating table, Phil?
2: All right. Yeah. If you can't pass your own partisan bill inside your own conference, that would seem to be problematic. (laughs) Lauren Fox, staying on it as always. Thank you, Bobby.
1: All right. Ahead, former President Trump says Republicans speak in his words inaccurately about abortion as he signaled single that, I should say, one of his 2024 main competitors' abortion policies. We'll tell you who.
2: And we're waiting for word about Iran, out of Iran about five Americans set to be freed any moment now. We'll have the latest from the ground. Stay with us.
9: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
10: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All
1: right, welcome back. So over the weekend, former President Trump refused to take a clear stance on abortion restrictions, all while criticizing how many of his fellow Republicans have handled the critical issue. It was part of the wide-ranging interview he did on Meet the Press on Sunday. It focused on everything from his efforts to overturn the 2020 election to the Biden impeachment inquiry to the war in Ukraine. Watch.
11: I think the Republicans speak very inarticulately about this subject. Other than certain parts of the country, you can't, you're not going to win on this issue, but you will win on this issue when you come up with the right number of weeks. We're going to agree to a number of weeks, or months, or however you want to define it, and both sides are gonna come together, and both sides, both sides, and this is a big statement, both sides will come together, and for the first time in 52 years, you'll have an issue that we can put behind us. The most senior lawyers in your own administration and on
6: your campaign told you that after you'd lost more than 60 legal challenges, that it was over. Why did you ignore them and decide to listen to a new outside group? Because I
11: didn't respect them. Uh, You'd hire them. Sure, but that doesn't mean, you know, you hire them, you never met these people, you get a recommendation, they turn out to be rhinos or they turn out to be not so good. In many cases, I didn't respect them. But I did respect others. I respected many others I, that, that said the election was rigged.
6: Were you calling the shots, though, Mr. President, ultimately?
11: Uh, as to whether or not I believed it was rigged? Oh, sure. I, okay. I, it was my decision but I listened to some people some people said that.
6: Did you talk to Speaker McCarthy about this House impeachment agreement? Tell him that he should open a house? No, no,
11: I don't do agree? that. I don't think he'd do that. I mean he wouldn't do it based on me, no. Did Not you a... talk
6: to your Republican allies on Capitol Hill and say you should support this? No, I don't to have agree. to
11: talk. They're more proactive than I am. They think it's terrible.
6: Some people hear you say you're going to end the war in 24 hours, yep. and they worry that means President Putin is going to get to keep no, the no, territory no, no. he's unlocked. I'd make and a claimed. fair deal
11: for everybody. Nope. I'd make
6: Doesn't mean deal. that?
2: Joining us now, CNN early start anchor and chief national affairs analyst Casey Hunt and senior congressional reporter for Punchbowl News, making a state visit like many others to New York this week, Andrew Desiderio. Um, Casey, I-, I want to start with you because what is... What's so striking is any other Republican candidate in any other Republican primary, those comments on abortion uh, in his position on abortion would end his candidacy among primary voters. Like, period. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but so why why is Trump able to do what he does on this issue?
12: Yeah. No, you're not wrong, Phil. And I think, you know, you saw him walk a different line on this when he ran in 2016. He had to do a ton of work with evangelical voters. He put out that list of Supreme Court justices he would appoint uh, to try to reassure them because, you know, he has had expressed honestly, uh, pro-choice views, uh, to use the language uh, of that movement, uh, in the past. And there was a lot of doubt about where he stood on abortion. Uh, Obviously, we're in a much different world now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And these ballot measures time after time uh, have shown that the American public has turned against Republicans, on this issue. And uh, obviously you're seeing the split. I mean, it's a pretty classic situation, right? What you need to say to win the primary is very different than what you're going to need to say to win the general election. You know, if you're Donald Trump and you're sitting here, it's hard to see how at this point you're going to lose the primary. You got to be a little bit more worried about the general election against Joe Biden.
1: Let's listen to what he said uh, about Ron DeSantis and the Florida six-week ban specifically in this interview. Here it is.
11: Sanct is, is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think I, that I think what he did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake.
1: Andrew, to the point that Phil just made, which I think is, is spot on, there's also the element that Casey brought up, which is, yes, but he got three Supreme Court appointments that reversed Roe versus Wade, so did exactly what the evangelicals and many others had wanted to see on that front. So can he, does that allow him to speak this way on abortion?
13: Right. It's kind of ironic because with the appointments of those three Supreme Court justices, he kind of paved the way for the overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision. And he said
1: as much. Remember that 60 Minutes interview with Leslie Stahl? I will appoint pro-life justices.
13: Exactly. And I think to Casey's point, this is an acknowledgment from former President Trump, that this is a tough issue for Republicans in a general election. You've seen even in conservative states like Kansas and Ohio, for example, uh, abortion rights have won out. And I think uh, the former president- By the president, people on ballot. Exactly. I think the former president is acknowledging that reality and trying to sort of pivot to general election mode in that sense.
2: Yeah. His political antenna is accurate, at least based on uh, the statewide races we've seen. Uh, Andrew, the, the idea that he hasn't spoken to Kevin McCarthy or rank-and-file House Republicans about impeachment. Um, That is not my understanding of the truth, based on people I've talked to who've had direct conversations with him.
13: Why do you think he says that? I think he's trying to provide some distance between the issue to make it seem like it's not political retribution against uh, President Biden. Obviously, that's a big priority of his and Has many he of Has seen allies. his own
2: social media account, though?
13: Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> I think that's an important point here. But also, when you look to House Republicans in general, you have all of these, I believe it's 17 Republicans who come from districts that President Biden won in 2020— they don't want to touch this issue. They much less don't want to vote for an impeachment inquiry on the House floor. It kind of reminds me of the 2018 cycle uh, and when Democrats were trying to move to impeach uh, then-President Trump, how many Democrats from Trump-1 districts were very afraid to embrace impeachment at first. Now, they, they might come around to it, but right now, politically, it's, it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's cagey for those Republicans.
1: This deal from some Republicans, Casey, just explain to people what, what's in it a continuing resolution and what comes along with it, and if it is dead on arrival?
12: Uh, Sure, uh, Poppy. Yeah, I mean, this deal uh, between—it's a group of Main Street Republicans, right, talking to a group of conservative (coughs) hardliners, and they're essentially uh, kind of trading back and forth in terms of of spending levels, uh, what they would like to see— in, in a short extension here, it would be a 31-day mm-hmm. uh, short extension. But the reality is, it's almost not even worth talking about the details because it's so unlikely that this actually gets us anywhere. Because the reality is right now, even, even if they can get it through the House, it's going nowhere in the Senate um, for a variety of reasons, not least because they don't intend to attach Ukraine aid uh, to this bill. And that's something Senate Republicans mm-hmm. really want to see. Um, so- in, in theory, uh, I guess it's something to, to talk about, but nobody that I've spoken to over the course of the last 12 hours really thinks that this is going to solve the problem.
2: Other than that, though, everything is going great um, <laughs> on a Monday morning. morning. And this is why Andrew's rushing to get back to Capitol Hill tonight for Senate votes, because <laughs> the, the excitement just never stops. Never <laughs> Casey, Casey, Andrew, thanks, guys. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. So ahead for us this morning, an urgent search underway right now for whoever shot and killed the Los Angeles sheriff's deputy as he was wearing his uniform and inside his marked patrol car. The latest on that.
2: And what we're learning this morning about the allegations of sexual assault and abuse against actor Russell Brand. Stay with us.
1: The co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine has been removed from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's foundations board after comments he made in a New York Times interview. That interview was published Friday in the interview. Jan Wenner spoke about his upcoming book called The Masters, which features interviews that he conducted with iconic artists like John Lennon, Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger, many others. This is while he was at the helm of Rolling Stone. In the interview, he spoke about his decision not to include interviews with women or with black artists. Listen to this.
14: Insofar
15: as women, I mean, there were just none of them were as articulate enough on this
16: intellectual level. Oh, stop it.
15: You can't say that. You're, you're telling Did me you Joni Mitchell is not articulate enough? It's not that they're inarticulate, although go I have a deep conversation with Grace Slick or Janice. Please be my guest. Just for public relations sake, maybe I should have gone and found uh, one black and one woman artist to include here that didn't measure up to that same historical standards, just to to avert this kind of criticism, which, I mean, I get
2: it. In a lengthy statement, Winner apologized for his remarks and said he would accept the consequences. Joining us now, host of Boston Globe today, uh, Shagun Odolowu, look, it's, I'm not really sure where to start. We obviously have the statement from Jan Winner, his apology. Um, What's your take on that statement? And I think the, the repercussions of what's happened since.
17: Well, I think the apology is as disingenuous as the book he wrote. Thank you for having me. You write a book on the masters of rock and roll and you don't have black uh, contributors, then it's not really a a book of masters of rock and roll since the art form was created by black musicians. So if you're going to tell me that these same songwriters who created this incredible music aren't articulate enough to uh, to have passages in your book, I find everything from the premise of you writing the book to what you called it to not only be offensive, but to really just show the true colors of the man. And in that interview where they said, you know, Joni Mitchell, so let's, let's just separate some of the women that he said were inarticulate because Dolly Parton, is in the Rock and Roll Hall Mm -hmm. of Fame. Janet Jackson, who's black and a woman, is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Annie Lennox from the Eurythmics is in the Hall of Fame. Jay-Z is in the Hall of Fame. LL Cool J is in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Quincy Jones is in the Hall of Fame. You're telling me that all of these prolific songwriters, all of these masters of words and thoughts aren't articulate enough to be in your book? As far as I'm concerned, Rolling Stone and him and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I mean, it's a joke. Right, right now, his, his comments, it's, it, it's beneath us talking about it because the man has showed his true colors with his bigotry, his bias, and honestly, his buffoonery.
1: So then let's talk about something else that is happening right now, this exclusive reporting from the UK Times about accusations of rape, sexual assault, and abuse against actor Russell Brand. Um, The BBC and also Channel 4 in the UK say they're investigating these assault allegations. Obviously, the authorities as well. The allegations are between 2006 and 2013 uh, while he worked for the networks. Here is what he said about this. Listen.
18: But amidst this litany of astonishing, rather baroque attacks are some very serious allegations that I absolutely refute. These allegations pertain to the time when I was working in the mainstream, when I was in the newspapers all the time, when I was in the movies. And as I've written about extensively in my books, I was very, very promiscuous. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. I was always transparent about that then, almost too transparent. And I'm being transparent about it now. that that's his response.
1: These are incredibly serious allegations.
17: They they are poppy. And I want to take a different tact, right? Every time a man like myself will come on air, will say that this is horrible because I have a mother and I have a sister and I'm the father of a daughter. But these are horrible—like, I, I, I hate it when men say that, right, as if the act itself isn't horrible, that we know women is is that we should feel more disgusted by it. Here is someone who is an alleged—or admitted, sorry, admitted substance abuser. So during that time, he's admitted to being— not only sex, a sex addict, but also addicted to substances. And I would just question his own recollection of this. One of the women who's alleged, in, who's alleged to have been sexually assaulted by him was in her teens, and her family alleges to grooming. If any of this has a, has credibility, then Russell Brand... Should not, be, should not be so cavalier with the way he's speaking. Because, yeah, I do have a mom and I do have a sister and I am the father of a daughter. Putting all of that aside, this behavior is, ab- is, is ab- abhorrent, right? And Russell, Russell Brand has a history of abhorrent behavior. I don't think he did himself any favors with all of that being said, right? With all of the disgust we feel due diligence let's get to the bottom of this because there are victims involved and there are there is russell brand and if he did not do this let the let the courts let the due diligence prove it out but if he did, the way he has gone about this, just it, it offends. It, it's just offensive because sexual assault is the most egregious form of cowardice. It is to use your position, especially f- to a, a man inflicting it upon a woman. It's not only cowardice, but it's chaos because you're robbing this person of their sense of self. And if one of them was a teenager, um, as is alleged, I, I, like I said, it just the way Russell Brand is coming off is, for me, unforgivable.
1: Shigun Oduolo, thank you very much for weighing in on both of these critically important stories. We'll keep following them. Thank you, Poppy. Yep.
2: Well, new this morning, Los Angeles County is offering $250,000 as a reward for information leading to a suspect <clears throat> after a sheriff's deputy was shot and killed while on duty and sitting inside his patrol car on Saturday. Officials say they believe Ryan Clinkenbrumer was, quote, potentially targeted and ambushed. A law enforcement officer also says this surveillance video obtained by CNN shows the suspect vehicle slowly pull alongside the deputy's vehicle, then speed away. It happened in Palmdale, about 60 miles north of L.A. The sheriff's department released a bulletin last night with clear photos of the same vehicle, a dark gray Toyota Corolla that was captured on the surveillance camera. Police are asking the public to come forward if they have any additional video or information.
1: Well, this morning, police say five teenagers are on the run after escaping from a juvenile detention center. This happened in Pennsylvania last night. Nine teens escaped altogether, four so far have been taken into custody. A riot broke out just before the escape. Police say the teens worked together to overpower two employees and take their keys. Then they got out by going under a fence. Law enforcement have now regained control of that facility, but authorities say the teens may be wearing white or gray T-shirts. Anyone who encounters them should contact 911 immediately. Officers have now established a perimeter around the facility, which is just 15 miles west, we should note, of where the murderer, Danilo Cavalcante, escaped and then was captured two weeks later.
2: And the U.S. military says it is searching for a missing fighter jet in South Carolina after the pilot ejected over North Charleston during what they're calling a training mishap. Officials say he, the pilot parachuted to safety on Sunday and was taken to a local hospital. in stable condition. Response teams are now working to find the F-35B Lightning II fighter plane, according to Joint Base Charleston. They're asking for the public's help in finding that aircraft. They say its last known position was near Lake Moultrie and Lake Marion, northwest of the city of Charleston. It's not clear yet what caused the pilot to eject. Well, our crews are live on the ground in Libya as official search is for the remains of people who were washed away in last week's floods.
1: Also soon, five Americans are expected to be freed from Iran. We will have the latest from the airport where that plane could soon take off. Our breaking news coverage continues.
19: Feelings? I don't know what I am feeling. I cannot express it. I saw death with my own eyes. I saw my family about to die in front of my eyes. I wanted to hold on to anything. But I could only say, dear God, say my children and my husband. I saw people dying in front of me. I saw death, a moment that cannot be described as much as I try.
2: Those horrific words from one survivor as thousands try to pick up the pieces of their lives after those deadly floods in Libya last week. Now, this morning, rescue crews are working to recover bodies after catastrophic damage in the port city of Derna. The difficult terrain continuing to make the process extremely difficult.
10: As a Libyan, when I pull out bodies, I swear
18: I cry. I can't handle it. Now, the U.N. has revised its previous
2: death toll of more than 11,000 to nearly 4,000. But there are still thousands of people missing. CNN's Germana Karacha joins us live. For Derna, you've been following this story for the last several days, every single day. What's the latest on the ground right now?
20: Well, Phil, I mean, this is a traumatized city, as you can imagine. Uh, More than a week since this catastrophe struck, there is just so much shock and heartache in the city. You've got grown men and women who walk past us while they're sobbing. You look at people and they just have this blank, shell-shocked look on their faces, staring into the distance. I mean, people here, I mean, I was speaking to a woman, uh, a volunteer who's been dealing with uh, preparing the bodies of dead women for burial and she survived this and she's not had time to process what she's uh, been through and she was asking us if we think she will ever see her city rise up again and she could barely finish this question before bursting into tears. And you just see this everywhere, you've got survivors who've not had the time to think about what happened to them, what they're going to do next all they're focused on right now is trying to find their loved ones. But the gut-wrenching reality is really starting to sink in that there's really not much hope left to find them alive. So now they're trying to recover their dead bodies. And that also, Phil, may prove to be impossible you do have search and recovery search and rescue teams that have been working uh, across the city in the devastated areas in areas where you have entire neighborhoods that have been wiped digging through the muddy rubble you've got local teams you've got some international teams uh, but what officials are telling us is they don't believe they're going to find many bodies here they believe the majority of the bodies Um, are in the Mediterranean. You have thousands of people they believe that have been swept away with their homes and inside their cars into the sea and there you have this ongoing effort by different uh, international teams, Libyan teams that have been using choppers, divers, boats, out at sea trying to recover bodies, but one of those international teams we've been uh, speaking to say it has become really, really difficult for them to recover bodies because um, a lot of these remains have ended up in hard to reach areas and coves and on rocks and they just don't have the ability to deal with that, especially when you take into consideration the health hazards. Um, One of those teams telling us they saw 300 bodies spotted just a few days ago, and now they say they've just disintegrated into remains uh, that they just can't uh, recover, and you can imagine how devastating this is for the many families that are still trying to get the bodies of their loved ones and to give them a proper burial. These rescue teams out at sea telling us they have dealt with a lot of, a lot in the past. They have done um, migrant uh, boats capsizing, accidents at sea, but never have they dealt with anything on this scale before. Hundreds, thousands of bodies. Were.
2: Yeah, it's unimaginable devastation. Jamani, you've been doing great work. Please continue uh, to keep us posted on this as it continues to play out. Thanks so much.
1: We do have more on our breaking news this morning. Five Americans expected to be freed from Iran. They will head back to the United States. We are live on the runway in Qatar.
9: More CNN
20: this morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Adi Cornish
1: Back to our breaking news this morning. Iran is set to release five Americans who are held in prison in Iran. Right now, a jet is on standby to bring them from Tehran to Qatar. We'll bring you the breaking news as that happens from the airport in just a few moments.
2: But first, as we continue to watch that story, it has been 27 years since the Cowboys won a Super Bowl. The season is only two weeks old, but Cowboys fans are acting like they're about to win it again because it's a year that ends in 12 months. Uh, the Cowboys are 2-0. Sorry, I'm a 49ers fan. The Cowboys are 2-0 beating the two New York City teams by a combined 60 points. That's cold-blooded. Coy Wire joining us now. Coy, what is the key uh, to America's team in their 2-0 start?
21: Phil, offense wins games. Defense wins. Championships. Championships. There you go. That's my man. (laughs) Listen, after one of the biggest season-opening shutout road wins in NFL history last week against the Giants, those Cowboys are facing the Jets. And former number 2 overall pick Zach Wilson, he's in for the injured Aaron Rodgers, remember, And he's going to be having nightmares about Micah Parsons. He went full on Freddy Krueger, Freddy Krueger on Wilson for the first of his two sacks and a team high seven pressures. But watch this next play, Phil and Poppy. Parsons, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania's finest, tackling Dalvin Cook, ripping the ball away. He gets the forced fumble and recovery on the same play. Dan Quinn's defense would then intercept Wilson on the Jets. Final three possessions, a 30-10 win. The Cowboys have dominated for a combined score of 70-10 in their first two games. And Coach Brian Dables, Giants, they looked like they were cruising for another bruising down to the Cardinals, 20 to nothing at halftime, meaning they'd been outscored 60 to zip since the start of the season. I hope someone recorded Coach's halftime speech because Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley led four straight touchdown drives after that. Jones hit Isaiah Hodges to tie the game at 28. They did get the ball back, Jones drives from the field goal range, and Graham Gano, yes, <laughs> Giants rally for the 31 to 28 win. A bit of sad, scary news for the Giants. So uh, Saquon Bartley potential injury to dealing with moving forward.
1: That was a good one, Coy.
2: Good, Coy. Well, thank you very much.
1: as well as Gano.
2: Yes. Thanks, thanks, buddy. As always.
1: CNN This Morning continues right now. Breaking news in Iran, set to release five American prisoners at any moment. Right now, a jet is on standby. $6 billion
22: of frozen Iranian accounts for Iran to use for humanitarian goods. Donald Trump's interview included
18: a long list of deceptions, half-truths, and outright
11: lies. I don't consider us to have much of a democracy right now. Free speech is shot. These are banana republic indictments. I'm not anywhere very near 80, by the way. Well, I will be toward the end.
7: They want to see those 40% wage increases, potentially four-day work weeks, job security against the EV transition.
21: The membership is fed up. It's been decades of falling behind.
8: It's time. It's time. We're due.
2: This is CNN Breaking News. And we do start with that breaking news this morning. As things currently stand, Iran is set to release five American prisoners. Right now, a jet is waiting on the tarmac in Qatar uh, to bring them home. They have not gotten there yet. But under this deal, the U.S. has unfrozen $6 billion of Iranian assets for Iran to use for humanitarian purposes.
1: We should note the Biden administration has also agreed to release five Iranians detained here in the United States. Notably, two of them will stay here. In the U.S., we have team coverage of all of these headlines this morning. CNN national security reporter Natasha Bertrand, has more details. Let's begin, though, with our colleague Becky Anderson. She is live on the tarmac at the Doha International Airport. This is where the Americans will land about two hours after they take off from Tehran. But what can you tell us in terms of timing?
3: Yeah, this is what we know at this point. That flight, the Qatari jet, has been on the ground in. Uh, Tehran now for about three hours or so. And a source familiar uh, with the briefing, um, with the matter, says that that is the flight, that that is the jet that these Americans, these five uh, wrongfully detained Americans, uh, will board uh, on a flight which will uh, come here at some point, um, they hope today. Um, and they will be transferred uh, into American hands. The American negotiators are here in Qatar. Qatar has played an absolutely crucial role uh, in what has been a very complex and complicated deal—a swap of these uh, prisoners, these American citizens uh, in in uh, Iran for five Iranian host- uh, five Iranian prisoners. Sorry, uh, in the U.S., two of which uh, have already said, according to reports, that they want to stay. Uh, in the US, uh, two of whom will be, uh, one assumes, um, expatriated home and another will go to a third country. The other really crucial part of this deal, of course, is that $6 billion in what were frozen funds, Iranian cash sitting in a South Korean bank account because of the U.S. sanctions. Those sanctions have been waived. And according to a source familiar with what is going on as we speak, confirming that that $6 billion worth of assets, Iranian assets, have now been dropped here, transferred here, electronically transferred here to doha so that's as things stand at the moment that jet still on the ground in Qatar, expected to leave in the hours to come the money according to the source here involved with the matter says that the transfer of funds from south korea is complete
1: thank you please stand by as as we wait for that jet to take off and natasha i just want to go to you and the reaction in washington obviously there have been critics of this There have been questions raised about the $6 billion. It is Iranian money, but still a number of Republicans criticizing that. What are you hearing?
23: Yeah, Poppy, so look, this is a deal that has been in the works for the last seven months. And in fact, the U.S. has been trying to negotiate with the Iranians for the release of these Iranian Americans uh, for just over two years now. So obviously something that the administration has been working pretty hard to secure, making a key pillar of its foreign policy objectives over the last several years. And now they see, obviously, a breakthrough uh, about to happen. But the key caveat here is that $6 billion in funds that are going to be unfrozen and allowed to be given to Iran through a Qatari bank account that will essentially monitor the disbursement of these funds so that Iran can use them for humanitarian reasons. That has prompted a lot of backlash by Republicans, as you mentioned, in Congress, who are equating this payment essentially as a ransom. They say that this is not the way to deal with the Iranians and that giving them this money, which again is Iranian money that has been frozen for the last several years, uh, will only encourage them to take more uh, Mm. Americans hostage, to take more Americans prisoner. Now, the administration says, look, this is the best possible uh, outcome here. The funds are only going to be used for humanitarian reasons, and they will be closely monitored by the U.S. Treasury Department uh, and Qatar. So not money that's going to be flowing directly into Iranian coffers by any means, and importantly, not U.S. taxpayer money. Again, these are Iranian funds that are simply being unfrozen, guys.
2: Anderson on the ground for us in Doha. Thank you very much. We're going to continue to cover this throughout the course of the morning. Christiane Amanpour will be back with us on set shortly. Stay with us on that front. But also this morning, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries was on the picket line alongside members of the United Auto
17: Workers Union. What they're fighting for fundamentally is the American dream. And so we stand with the UAW as they fight for a fair contract. As they fight to benefit from the fruits of their labor,
2: it's an unprecedented strike against the top U.S. automakers, and it's now entering day four. Negotiators are set to return to the bargaining table today after failing to reach a resolution over the weekend. Now, the union is making some ambitious demands for benefits they gave up when the companies were once facing bankruptcy during the Great Recession. Now, all three automakers. They're reporting record or near record profits. CNN's Vanessa Joukiewicz live in Wayne, Michigan with more. Vanessa, you've covered this so closely. You've spoken to all of the key parties here. What are the key sticking points as we enter day four?
7: The key sticking points are really what we've seen from the very beginning. We know that they've tried to get closer, especially on the wages, cost of living. But the two sides at this point still negotiating, which is great news, but still far apart. Stellantis is set to head back to the main bargaining table today. We saw Ford and GM meet at that main bargaining table at UAW headquarters in Detroit over the weekend. But I want to bring in Julie Geierman. She is with Ford. Come over here for me. We work at this facility, this plant right here. I want to know from you day 4, how are you feeling? How is the mood out here today? Um I think it's very lively. Uh we're we're
1: ready to to stick it out as long as we need to, hoping hoping that this is a short
7: strike. But I have every confidence in the world that the UAW will get us a good contract. And negotiations are about compromise, right? We know that the union has been asking for 40% in wage increases for the next four years. The automakers have come in at 20. Where's the compromise for you? Do you feel like there is a compromise? I'd rather not say. <laughs> Do you want to see a compromise or are you sticking compromise to- compromise is good, but I'd rather not say what the compromise is. Yeah. I don't have a number. Do you believe that the union will negotiate in terms of being able to compromise? Do you feel like that's something that they're willing to do or they stick into their guns on these demands? Um, I think they're willing to compromise. I think that's what it's all about. Thank you so much, Julie okay. Geierman. Appreciate okay. your time. Uh, so in the next couple of days, we are expecting acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue and senior White House advisor Gene Sperling to come to Detroit to get involved in these negotiations, to try to move them forward, to try to hammer out a deal so Julie doesn't have to be here on the picket line for that much longer. Also, Phil, to point out, just across the border in Canada, the union Unifor, which represents over... 5,000 Ford workers may go on strike tonight if they don't reach a deal by 11.59 p.m. So that is, of course, complicating the strike happening on this side of the border here in the U.S. Bill?
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating new dynamic to an already very complex (laughs) set of (laughs) dynamics. Vanessa Rukavich, great reporting as always. Thank you. Poppy?
1: Also this morning, the Los Angeles Angeles County is offering a $250,000 reward for any information as to the shooting of Sheriff's Deputy Ryan where he was shot and he was killed inside his patrol car on Saturday. Officials say they believe he was potentially targeted and ambushed. Dr. Camilla Bernal is following all of this from L.A. He was wearing his uniform. He was inside his patrol car. And the authorities believe this could have been intentional targeting of him. What do we know this morning?
19: Yeah, Poppy, the sheriff's saying it could have been just because he was wearing his uniform and now. All available resources are being used to find the person or persons responsible for this. The sheriff vowing to find whoever did this. Um, I want to sort of go over the timeline of what happened here. You mentioned he was in a marked patrol car in uniform on duty. He was just leaving the station actually on Saturday night at around 6 p.m. in Palmdale, which is about 60 miles north of L.A., and he stopped at a red light. Uh, there is video obtained by CNN that shows a car. driving next to his patrol car and then uh, speeding away. Now what authorities say is a vehicle of interest is a 2006 to 2012 dark gray Toyota Corolla and they're asking for videos, for information, for anyone to take a look at this because they say it could be the missing puzzle piece. They're wanting information from the public and they've offered a $250,000 reward. Part of that reward coming from the city of Palmdale. I want you to listen to what the mayor here had to say.
12: Let me be crystal clear. This was an act of murder. This individual or
19: individuals are spineless criminals And our community will join together to bring them to justice. And there was a procession this weekend to honor and remember his life. He was 30 years old. He'd served with the department for eight years. This was a family calling. His father, his grandfather all served the sheriff's department here in Los Angeles. He got engaged four days before he was shot. Um, The sheriff just saying, look, he had so much left to live. Of course, they are upset, they're angry, and they're vowing for justice. This is a family, a department, and really a community that is grieving this loss, Poppy. Thinking of all
1: of them, especially his family this morning. Camilla, thank you for the reporting. Thank
19: you. Phil.
2: Former President Trump, who paved the way for Roe v. Wade to be overturned, says Republicans, quote, speak very inarticulately about abortion. Where the candidates stand. CNN is live on the campaign trail coming up.
1: We are also following this breaking news. Five Americans set to be released from Iran at any moment. We'll bring you the latest.
9: More CNN This Morning to come
23: after the break.
2: And back to our breaking news this morning. We've just learned that the Americans who are set to be released in Iran are right now being transported to a cuttery jet in Tehran. That's what a source briefed on the situation tells CNN. We're going to take you live to the airport in a few moments.
1: Meantime to politics in the U.S., former President Trump over the weekend refusing to take a clear stance on abortion restrictions while taking credit for the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. He also interestingly criticized many of his fellow republicans in terms of how they've handled this issue listen
11: dissent is, w- is willing to sign a 5 week and 6 week ban would you support that you think I, that I goes think what, too what far? he did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake i think the republicans speak very inarticulately about this subject other than certain parts of the country you can't you're not going to win on this issue but you will win on this issue When you come up with the right number of weeks.
1: Let's talk about that. Chief National Affairs Correspondent Jeff Zeleny joins us live on the campaign trail in Des Moines, Iowa. I am I know the sun's not up, but, you know, this this came out in the interview yesterday morning. I just wonder how people there in Iowa particularly are responding to those comments from the president, former president.
16: Well, Poppy, those comments certainly will be uh, reverberating because, A, the former president is coming here to Iowa later this week to Dubuque County, a heart of the uh, Catholic community. And also, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, the Republican, has signed an exact same law that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did in Florida, that six-week bill. Now, that is being held up in a legal uh, challenge here. But this is the central issue here. Abortion certainly has been something the former president has not wanted to engage in. He believes it's a losing issue, in his words, for the party as the midterm elections last year has showed. But this is, uh, there's no question that there is a huge debate, a divide inside the Republican party on this. That was made clear here over the weekend when his rival candidates expressed their views at a faith and freedom dinner for evangelical voters here in Des Moines.
6: The debate is whether there should be a federal law. Do You go and you put this ban of 15 weeks and what does it do? It has everybody running from us. I'm going to fight on the side of life every chance I get, but I'm not going to demonize people in the process.
2: I must tell you, I think we ought to ban abortion across America from that point that a baby can experience pain in the womb forward. It's a 15-week minimum ban. I believe it's an idea whose time has come.
17: I think the states have done the better job thus far. Congress has really struggled to to make a meaningful impact um, over the years.
16: So the Florida governor has also uh, tiptoed around this a bit, has not necessarily repeated his uh, past support for signing that bill, but has not stepped away from it directly either. But there is no doubt the former president's comments over the weekend make clear that abortion will indeed be front and center in the final four months of the Iowa caucus campaign. And evangelical voters, of course, play a huge role in the Republican caucuses here. For now, the former president holds his grip on most of those evangelical voters. But the reaction from those comments certainly will play a role into all of this as this keeps playing out here in Iowa. Again, less than four months now until the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, Philip Poppy.
1: Jeff Zeleny. Fascinating. Thanks very much.
2: Let's bring into the table CNN political commentator, former White House communications director, Alyssa Farah Griffin, CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon and CNN political commentator and New York magazine columnist Errol Lewis. Guys, welcome. Thank you for being here. Um, I want to dig in on on the the abortion piece and where that stands in the debate in a minute. But but I kind of want to start when it comes to Trump's interview with the fact that he's been indicted four times. He tried to overturn an election Um, and we're having a policy debate, which is. A good debate to consider <laughs> and weigh, and it's what Republican voters, particularly as Jeff points out, in Iowa do actually care about. But he's up 60 points right now.
8: Well,
24: exactly. It's absolute crazy town. I mean, in that interview alone, I thought Kristen Welker did a fantastic job. But, I mean, he incriminated himself again. He took responsibility for saying that it was my idea. Actually, are- I
2: want to play that. It's okay, a great yes. point. Can we play that sound real quick?
6: The most senior lawyers in your own administration and on your campaign told you that after you'd lost more than 60 legal challenges that it was over. Why did you ignore them and decide to listen to a new outside group? Because I didn't
11: respect them.
6: Were you calling the shots, though,
11: Mr. President, ultimately? Uh, As to whether or not I believed it was rigged? Oh, sure. It was my decision. But I listened to some people. Some people said that.
24: I mean, it's insane that in the year of our Lord, 2023, we're still debating this. And he is, as you mentioned, Phil, you know, 10, 20, 40 points in Iowa ahead of his GOP rivals this is a man who tried to overturn our democracy. And by the way, I mean, a lot of the polls show him kind of head to head with Joe Biden. If he loses, what's to say he won't do it again? And if he wins, that's a whole other Pandora's box of problems for our country.
1: Neryl, it also complicates the defense efforts. I mean, we, all his attorneys we coming on the air after this indictment, saying there's nothing wrong with following the advice of legal counsel.
0: That's right. In fact, it's a it's a pretty good defense, actually. But if you but, uh, uh, if you throw yeah. it away on national television, uh, that is no longer available to you. Or at a minimum, you're setting yourself up for very uncomfortable cross examination in right, these criminal he did charges. They also
1: say he would testify to Chris
0: That's right. He said he would testify. Uh, he will have a like I said, a very difficult uh, cross examination. He also sort of just like ladled, you know, layered, you know, one statement on top of another saying that he might have pardoned himself. He might pardon himself in the future. He might pardon half the people who got convicted on January 6th for the for those violations. Um, He really sort of put front and center an issue that, believe me, Donald Trump does not want the the conduct of his attacks on democracy to become a central issue in this in this uh, next election. He's not going to win that debate. And
18: yet that is the debate.
0: Um, that is the conversation that we should be having. And look,
18: let's not forget, I mean, Alyssa was in the Trump White House and she's yeah. one of <clears throat> dozens and dozens of been ringing of this alarm bell for some time. We're now warning <laughs> yeah. the American people and the Republican Party that this man represents a threat to the Republic. The most recent person on that bandwagon apparently is Jenna Ellis, his former lawyer, who was pushing these right. lies. Now we're calling him a malignant narcissist. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, go with people who know you best, but no, this interview was a disaster from a legal standpoint, clearly, and could represent uh, a, a, a possible rupture point.
11: And,
24: and quickly, it does show the tension you run into when you're running for office, but also running against four different indictments. So he's, you know, wants to be on air. He wants to be talking to the public and doing interviews, but then he runs into saying things that self-incriminate and that put his legal cases backward. But
2: it's also, I feel like this is, that was actually the best capture of this entire campaign season of... The other candidates running in this race, having policy debates, acting like the other stuff related to the former president who's leading the primary by 50 points doesn't exist. Right. Like it's 2012 all over again or early 2015 and Trump coming out and doing what he did. I mean, talking about conspiracy theories related to the election, it's just the same person he's always
24: been. And also realistic on on the abortion issue, which um, at the end of the day, Iowa voters are going to say Donald Trump got me Gorsuch, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. He's sufficiently pro-life. He played the biggest role in getting Roe overturned. So they can argue about weeks. That will not break through. The reason that people are losing by 40 points to Donald Trump is they did not litigate the case of his unfitness and the fact that he basically tried to overthrow our republic. You're not breaking through on a policy matter at this time. We are, what, four months from the Iowa caucuses, five months from New Hampshire? That's not fundamentally changing at this point. It's never historically happened, I should say.
1: Can I ask you about something that's not getting all the headlines this morning, but is is really critical, John, and I think speaks to what is happening in, the, in this country politically. The attorney general of Texas, Ken Paxton, gets acquitted by the Senate after the Republican-led House overwhelmingly votes to impeach him, I think it was 121 to 23, over all of these alleged wrongdoings. What, what does that tell you?
18: It tells you we've got a breakdown of <laughs> law and order and accountability in the face of hyper-partisanship and fear of the MAGA wing of the party. And that's what some of the senators said. You know, there's an attempt to intimidate. Um, and as you say, it was a republic, overwhelmingly Republican Texas right. House that, you know, voted to impeach him on a great deal of evidence. Mm-hmm. And the problem now is that hyper-partisanship trumps, no pun intended, basic well, fundamental facts. And remember, he was part of the effort to really push to try to overturn the election results. Absolutely. And, and I just I want to draw the connection also with, with the, McKay, uh, the McKay-Coppins-Romney interview the yeah. other day where Romney recounted the partisan pressure he felt during the first impeachment, where he felt he was the only Republican who was trying to do his constitutional duty and not saying, no, we're going to put partisanship ahead of principle. This is an endemic problem right now. It is in the water.
0: The uh, fact that he may, in fact, lose his ability to practice law is one of many, many problems that Ken Paxton still faces. FBI's been looking into him for years. Uh, You know, eight of his deputies called the FBI and said, there's ethical problems in this office. You've got to do something. He's got a a, a mountain of sleaze that led to that impeachment in the first place, that led to his near removal over the weekend, and that are still going to, to sort of dog him. I don't know what his future in public life is like, but the, the the reality is, um, he, if if Republicans in Texas or anywhere else are going to sort of cling to this standard, I think he really represents the first in a major state. To sort of get some of the, you know, something resembling some of the Trump treatment, where people say, if it's between my candidate and the law, I'm going to choose my candidate. Well,
24: and by the Uh, way, Mike uh, Allen had some great reporting in Axios that Donald Trump was actually playing in this race. He had actually talked about mm -hmm. primarying some of the senators, so they chose to vote with what's politically expedient over what's right. And once again, similar to Donald Trump it may be that the legal system catches up to him before the political system does.
2: So yeah, one just takes longer than yeah. the other. And Trump's ability to meddle in literally everything, whether it's impeachment or state races, it didn't do great for them in the midterms.
1: We'll have you guys back next hour. Thank, Thank you very much.
2: Well, happening soon, five Americans are expected to be freed from Iran. The U.S. is also releasing five Iranians from U.S. prison. New details are coming in. We've got Christiane Amanpour and David Sanger with us to go through all of it. Stay with us.
1: Back to our breaking news this morning. Five American prisoners in Iran are now, as we speak, being transported to a jet in Tehran. That is according to a CNN source. And right now, that jet is on standby. It will bring them from Iran to Qatar, then eventually on to the United States. Under this agreement, the U.S. has unfrozen $6 billion in Iranian funds meant to only be used for humanitarian purposes. And
2: the U.S. is also releasing five Iranians from U.S. prison. Two of them are apparently planning to stay in the U.S. Joining us now, CNN's chief international anchor Christiane Amanpour and CNN political and national security analyst and New York Times White House and national security correspondent David Sanger. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, Christiane, I want to start with you, given the fact your interview with one of the individuals that is apparently on his way, according to sources to the airport, It has been a little bit longer than we expected at this point. Why do you think that is?
4: Well, you know, I think it's probably because of the bureaucracy and, you know, the exact timings of getting the wire transfers and all that detail. I'm sure Dave and others will have a lot more details about that. But imagine these people who've been there eight years nearly, Siyamak Namazi, who I interviewed in Evin in March, and the others who've been there and they're just waiting and every minute there's a delay, it's another, you know, torture for them. So if they are indeed on the way to the airport, that's fantastic. And then as we know, they'll get onto this Qatari plane, uh leave Iranian airspace, get onto the tarmac in Doha, be transferred after about an hour of quick medical check onto a US government plane and then arrive here at a US military base. We don't know exactly which one, we assume it's Andrews, but we don't know, um, later tonight. And then their particular ordeal, hopefully this phase of it will be over, although there'll be a lot of, you know, counselling and getting reacquainted with free life and family that's going to have to happen, obviously. Let's listen to part of your interview with Siamak
1: Namazi, who in October would have been in that prison for eight Eight years. years. And he even
4: wrote, remember, that op-ed in the New York Times saying, why have I been left to rot, his words. And the longest, even since the famous hostage crisis in the embassy in seventy-nine eighty. That's right. Longer, three times longer. Which he points out. So let's let everyone listen to this.
5: I think the very fact that I've chosen to take this risk and appear on CNN from Evin from prison, it should just tell you how dire my situation has become uh, by this point. I've been a hostage for seven and a half years now. I've, um, that's six times the duration of the hostage crisis. I keep getting told um, that I'm going to be rescued uh, and deals fall apart or I get left abandoned. Um, Honestly, the other hostages and I desperately need President Biden to finally hear us out, to finally hear our cry for help and bring us home. And I suppose desperate times call for desperate measures. So this is a desperate measure.
1: David, as Christian pointed out last hour, why is it that the Obama administration, the Trump administration, was not able to bring him home. And why now, given the context with Iran and this moment with US-Iranian relations, is he coming home?
25: It's a really fascinating question. So first, the Iranian economy is in really tough shape right now. So the $6 billion means something to them. But if you believe the American account, and I have no reason to doubt it, it's going to be severely restricted. The money is actually going to sit in a bank in uh, Doha, And it will only be administered for a series of humanitarian uh, events. And in fact, the U.S. has exceptions in its existing sanctions for humanitarian work. Mm -hmm. So assuming they stick with that, then the U.S. has not given up that much. The five of the five uh, Iranians were going out. One of them is, uh, two of them are in jail. One actually was about to be released anyway. Um, And some are awaiting trial. But I think the, the bigger mystery out here is if you were the Iranians and you were doing this, you'd think you'd do it as a confidence-building measure to try to get onto something bigger, get the nuclear deal back in pieces, do something that would really open up money over time. You don't time. think there's
2: been any movement towards it, a better
25: relationship? It, you know, I've asked this question of, of American officials over the past couple of weeks, as it's become clear this deal is going to come together. That isn't happening, and in fact... Over the weekend, the Iranians announced that they were barring uh, a third of the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors, the inspectors who know the Iranian nuclear program the best. So if anything, they're kind of ramping up.
1: Uh, We both want to ask the same thing. Go ahead. Mike McCall, really critical, a Republican, a number of Republicans really critical of this money and I think it is a specious claim by the administration that it will only be used for humanitarian aids. Here he is, and then I want your response. Mm-hmm. John Kirby at the Defense Department the other day uh, said, oh, no, there are conditions. They can only spend it where we told them to spend it on humanitarian
0: efforts. Really? Maria, they are so naive. We all know money's fungible. And then the president of Iran just came out and said, I'm going to spend it however I want to. And of course he is. And guess where it's going to go? It's going to go into terror proxy operations. It's going to go into building their nuclear, you know, their nuclear, not defense system, but offensive system for, for a nuclear war.
4: You know, Mike, he can say all of that stuff. That's a very political statement. Obviously, the critics always use those kind of arguments, but you have to keep coming back to the facts and the facts are that the Trump administration entered the same kind of deals, and before that, you know, Obama, and before that, all the other administrations. This is Iranian money. It's not U.S. taxpayer money. The U.S. Treasury Department has eyes on the expenditures and the disbursements from this account in Doha. So, look, you know, I'm not a fortune teller. I don't know how, but this has happened many, many times. And it's important to say that every administration has had to face this dilemma... Since the Islamic Revolution, when Iran started, the, the sort of, you know, practice of, of taking Americans illegal and many others from other Western nations, by the way. Many other countries have to go into these kinds of deals until there's a grown up, joined up U.S. and Western policy to Iran, which there hasn't been since 1979. Christian, thank you very much as we wait again for this plane to take off. David, thank
1: you. Appreciate it. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington this week. He will meet with not only congressional lawmakers, but others as they debate whether to send more aid to Ukraine.
2: And three moderate House Republicans have struck a short-term funding deal with three-party hardliners, but that deal unlikely to pass with time running out. You're looking at it right there before the government shuts down. We're going to discuss all this with New York Democratic Congressman Pat Ryan. Stay with us.
1: All right, I want to update you on a story we brought you last hour. This just in nine teenagers who had escaped from that Pennsylvania juvenile detention center. They've been captured. We just heard from police in the area. We'll have a live report ahead.
2: Well, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is set to meet with lawmakers in Washington this week. It marks his second trip to the United States since the start of Russia's invasion. Amid deep divisions, though, this time in Congress about providing additional aid to Ukraine. Joining us now is Congressman Pat Ryan. He's a Democrat from New York. You're on the relevant committee, sir. Thank you for for being here uh, and on set with us as well. I want to start there because we are looking at kind of the broader devolution of government spending (laughs) process when it comes to Capitol Hill. But on this issue specifically, uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his kind of top Republican allies have said Ukrainian funding will not be in any stopgap spending bill. What's the solution here?
26: Look, I, I served in combat when you were in the heat of the battle is the absolute worst time to turn your back on your allies. And yet that is what the far right that's hijacked the Republican Party is doing. We are America. We are for freedom and democracy and against authoritarianism. And anything else, in my opinion, is just sort of political theater. We've got to we've got to come back together and hold that strong. And I think the, the vast majority of the American people, certainly in my district, agree with that. So we need leaders that will bring us back together on these fundamental issues. Has
2: the administration given you any sense how much time they have left, how much money they have left before they absolutely have to have more?
26: Uh, Well, I mean, I think they've done a good job. I mean, the administration has done a great job across the board, I believe, on on Ukraine. When it comes to thinking ahead, planning ahead, and frankly, recognizing some of the paralysis uh, in Congress right now, they feel that they're able to continue to provide the support that our Ukrainian allies need uh, but have been clear that we're getting into that window, particularly with the counteroffensive right now, where we need to be doubling down in support, not showing this ambivalence and this hesitance.
2: Um, we've been covering all morning the breaking news. That it looks like six Americans are on their way to an airport in Tehran to be freed, uh, five Americans, uh, I believe. The What we heard from Republicans in the lead up to this agreement, which we knew was in process, was the $6 billion that would be unfrozen uh, and administration officials say would be used for humanitarian aid only uh, is the equivalent of a ransom payment. What's your response to that?
26: Well, I think we have to look at the history with, of bad faith with, with the regime. I, I don't look at this with a Democrat or Republican lens. I look at it with the lens of my experience in service, my, my view of what's good for our national security. And you saw the comments from the Iranian president over the last week or two of we're going to use this money however we want sure we can say that we have some ability to have oversight over that but i have i have real concerns about this deal i understand and i understand the human side of it and the tragedy but we are i am concerned that we're rewarding bad behavior here decades of bad behavior by the iranian regime so i think we have to look more closely at this
2: but it's it's underway right now is this something you raise to the administration or will raise to the administration in terms of tracking that money seeing where it goes of course i mean we, I think, in a bipartisan way,
26: we've seen calls that especially in the face of what the president the Iranian President has said, we have to follow this very closely, and we've just seen them decade after decade break we come in good faith as we should we should always be working towards diplomacy, but we come in good faith, they break that good faith, and yet we continue in the same pattern so not only for this uh deal, which as you said, is largely being executed, i think today actually, but going forward, we need to. Tighten the ratchets and tighten the oversight when it comes to the Iranian regime. I mean, I face these guys directly in Iraq where they were killing my fellow soldiers. I I have very little tolerance for their continued behavior.
2: Another area where there's been uh, some dispute between you and the administration is on immigration. It's a huge issue in New York State right now. Um, You have called for months now, not only for the declaration of a state of emergency, but also. Uh, for an expansion of the temporary protected status to allow people to work. Uh, There has been no movement on either, at least that I have seen. Why not?
26: This is decades of failure of our political system. The closest we were to passing immigration reform in 2007, you saw the far right swoop in, blow up what would have been a very good deal for, for the American people, for my district, for farmers, for business owners who are desperate for, for workers, and for the people coming from fleeing tremendous violence and strife who want to make a better living for their family. So this is a, we have to always see this as what it is, a humanitarian crisis. Keep in mind both the humanitarian aspects, but the crisis aspects. That's why, as you said, I've called from the beginning for, for the Biden administration to declare this a national emergency, to really mobilize the resources necessary. And then, of course, we have to get people to work. The fact that we can't pass bipartisan legislation in Congress to allow people who want to come here to work when we desperately need workers throughout our economy shows how extreme the Republicans have become on this issue. So we need to hold the the Biden administration uh, accountable for doing a better job. We also need to hold McCarthy and
2: the far right accountable for holding up the progress. Can I ask you a bigger picture question? I remember when you kind of shocked the world a little bit with your special election win, um, that uh, A lot of people, I think, in hindsight would point to that and say that was the first sign that there was a misunderstanding of the dynamics heading into the midterm elections in terms of where the country was, in terms of where the electorate would be. Do you think that's happening again when you look at the polling, when you look at kind of where President Biden stands, uh, particularly head to head with with the former president? uh, Or are there real concerns right now inside your party?
26: The American people are smart. The American people understand what's happening. There are grave threats to our democracy, to our foundational values. The the attack on reproductive freedom in the Dobbs decision showed that so viscerally, and it woke up everyone across the country from Kansas to my race, uh, to recent elections that we've seen. That trend of undercutting our democracy, trying to take away fundamental freedoms, continues and has actually only grown more extreme. We're seeing this in the Republican presidential debate where they're trying to out-maga each other further and further and further to the right, when the American people just actually want government to work and to deliver thoughtful, practical results. So that will play out in 2024. That's what's happening on the ground. We have to actually listen to that and show that we as Democrats have always and will continue to stand and fight for freedom and for democracy. And if we do that, we will absolutely win the day uh, when it comes to 2024.
2: Congressman Pat Ryan, I I appreciate it. I know you're the vice chair of the House Gun Violence Prevention Task Force. You guys are are trying to make a move on that in terms of the discharge petition. Um, We definitely want to talk about that uh, heading forward. But I know it's a very busy morning uh, for everybody. appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for having me. All
1: right. negotiations set to resume today as auto workers continue this historic strike against all three of the big automakers. They joined several other unions on strike in America. We'll break down the broader trend here coming up. More CNN
9: This Morning to come after the break.
1: All right. From auto workers to Hollywood's writers and actors, nurses, Starbucks baristas, thousands of workers have gone on strike this year. But even with the recent uptick in union activity, the numbers still are not what they once were. What are we seeing big picture with unions in America? Our business reporter, Nathaniel Meyerson, is here. I've been thinking a lot about sort of the big picture and sort of this resurgence of union power. It is resurging, but it is not where it was, right?
22: To an extent, Poppy. All right, so why are we seeing all of these uh, strikes right now? It's really a response to decades of wage stagnation, income inequality. So you look at uh, from 1979 to 2021, Worker productivity increased 65%, but wages didn't keep up, increasing just 17%. And we're also seeing um, an increase in strikes right now because of the tight labor market. Workers feel like they have a lot of leverage right now. You look at the number of job openings, about 9 million uh, job openings. And, and so workers feel like they have power.
1: So where, where does this go from here?
22: So, OK, unions still have not returned to their historical levels. 300,000 workers on strike excludes the UAW strike, but that's still nowhere close to the number of strikes ago. we used to see. You know, we're, we're heading towards 2018 levels, but look, 1.5 million workers on strike in the 70s and 80s. When Reagan in 1981 fired the Air Traffic Controllers Union, that's really when we start to see the number of strikes decrease. Union rates. yeah. of workers workers were unionized. In America? In America. 10% today.
1: Fascinating.
22: Steady decline. So more strikes right now, but not at the level that they were, and certainly not at the union rates we used to see.
1: Do we know if they're more effective now, though, in getting what they want?
22: I think we're going to wait to see this play out, UAW strike. That's going to have
2: a long-term
22: impact.
1: For sure. Nathaniel, thank you for the perspective. Phil. Phil.
2: Well, more on our breaking news this morning. Five Americans are expected to be freed from Iran. We'll head back to the U.S. CNN is live on the ground. We'll take you there next.
1: Morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. There is a lot to get to this morning, a very busy Monday morning here for us. So let's start with five things to know for Monday, September 18th. This breaking news. Five Americans wrongfully detained in Iran about to be free this morning. Right now, they're on their way to a plane that will take them to Qatar and then back to the United States by tonight, hopefully.
2: And this just into CNN. Nine teenagers who escaped from a juvenile detention center in Pennsylvania are back in custody. Also this morning, former President Donald Trump says it was, quote, my decision to try and overturn the 2020 election results. And legal experts say that could impact his defense with the special counsel.
1: Also new this morning, we've just learned Hunter Biden is suing the IRS, alleging its agents illegally released his tax information.
2: And the clock is still ticking toward a potential government shutdown. House Republicans have come up with what they thought was a deal, but it could and likely is dead on arrival. We'll have more seen in this morning starts right now.
25: five prisoners who are citizens of the islamic republic will be freed from the prisons of the united states and in exchange five prisoners who used to be in the islamic republic will be handed over to them based on their request to the american side
1: all right you heard it right there right now iran in the process of releasing those five american prisoners as part of this deal with the united states in the last hour a source told CNN the detainees were being transported to a plane in Tehran that will be flown first to Qatar.
2: Now, under the agreement, the U.S. has already unfrozen and transferred $6 billion for Iran to use for what the U.S. says will be humanitarian purposes only. And five Iranians detained in the U.S. will also be released. Becky Anderson is live for us at the airport in Doha. And CNN chief international anchor Christiane Amanpour has been with us all mornings, back with us still. First to Becky, though. Becky, we've been kind of waiting. We had a timeline about what we thought might happen and when it's been a little delayed. What's happening right now?
3: Well, the deal does seem to be moving, um, albeit at a slightly slower pace than sources had told us it would, but confirming that sources briefed on the situation um, in Tehran uh, today, telling us that the U.S. detainees are now on their way to a Qatari jet, which is sitting on the tarmac um, in Tehran, ready to fly those uh, five uh, wrongfully detained American citizens here to Qatar at some point today. Now, when I say that deal appears to be going to plan to, to the extent that it can, Uh, The other part of that deal, of course, is a very important complex and complicated um, transfer of funds from a South Korean bank, Iranian funds from a South Korean bank via Switzerland into uh, two Doha accounts, two, two banks here in Doha. Six Iranian banks have opened bank accounts at these two Doha banks, and we have heard uh, both from the source here on the ground um, and from the Iranian side, that that money has now arrived in that uh, in those two Doha bank accounts. So the Iranians, this is Iranian money uh, that was. Uh, frozen in accounts in South Korea does now, uh, it seems uh, confirmed, uh, to have uh, arrived in these uh, Doha accounts, which is all important because, as I say, this was a complicated and complex deal. Perhaps nobody really expected it to go uh, uh, completely to plan. But as things stand at present, certainly it does appear that those US detainees are on their way to the flight. Uh, Once that takes off from Tehran, it's about a two-hour flight here to Doha, where they will be met by the American negotiators. Okay, Becky, thank you. Stand by as we wait for that plane to
1: take off. Christian, just to you, reminding people of who has been held mm. and for who long. Simak Namazi, namely, but also Ahmad Shigari and Murad Tabaz and...
4: Two others who have not wanted to be named. That's right. Two others who have not wanted to be named, and everybody's respected that uh, as their prerogative. And as you mentioned the name, Siamak has been held since October 2015. That's nearly eight years exactly, only because he's American. And the same with the other two who've been held more or less uh, for the two and a half and two years each. They have been held as part of the ongoing Iranian strategy of trying to get its money back that has been frozen in many, many countries after the Islamic Revolution of 1979. And so this, is, this has just been going on. And at the heart of it, though, really is a human story. At the heart of it are people who've been just swept up, you know, some sham trial some completely irrelevant charges, some completely nonsensical sentences, and put into deep suffering in Evin, which we all know to be such a, you know, Hard, terrible place where they have a whole set of different kinds of prisoners there, especially they have political prisoners. Uh, You know, there are a lot of the protesters from, you know, this year of women's protests who are still there. And when I spoke to Siamak in March, um, you know, he, he took a last ditch desperation move to risk calling out of prison. He did have Phone privileges, but he not necessarily to call CNN, sure. but nonetheless he called CNN and um, and and laid it out how terrible life was, gotten better after he was out of the harshest two years of of solitary confinement, um, and how desperate he was that the U.S. administration, the president, all the others, to hear their plea and to get them out.
2: I picked up. I was at the White House at the time. There was a shift in tempo after that interview, and I think he'd also he'd been on a hunger strike before that yes. as well. he he'd started to draw attention. Um, the process after that interview. Did you pick up any sense of? if negotiations
4: had picked up, how they had picked up, how to get to this point that we're at today? To be honest, no, I'm actually really interested to hear from you that you noticed a shift in tempo, because I'm glad. I'm glad that as a news organisation, we were able to play that role, because all we did was report the story, and it was a story that I guess potentially the administration could hide behind the idea that it wasn't in the spotlight. It wasn't in the spotlight, until it was. Until it was. And I'm very proud that CNN put it into the spotlight. This is a human story. And every other administration has had to deal with these kinds of unsavory, unpalatable, maybe to many people, deals with Iran. You know, it's terribly upsetting that a very decent arms control agreement called the Iran you know, nuclear deal was just trashed by President Trump. And now we're in a terrible, terrible situation because we've got all that going on as well. Having said that, President Trump, President Obama, previous presidents did enter deals to release wrongfully held Americans in Iranian jails who are only there for the single reason of being Iranian. As, uh, sorry, of being American, as, as Siamak told me.
1: Christian, thank you. Stand by. I think you'll be with us throughout the day, right, as this plane mm-hmm. takes off and then eventually comes to the United States. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Thank you.
2: Keeping an eye on for sure. And also, though, this just in, nine teens who escaped a juvenile detention center in Pennsylvania after a riot there are back in custody. Police say the teens work together to overpower two female employees and take their keys. CNN's Danny Freeman is live for us in Philadelphia with more. Uh, Danny, you're no stranger to prisoner escapes at this point in time. Uh, what, what, where did the police actually find this? This seems to have been resolved fairly quickly.
14: yeah phil we got to stop meeting like this that is the good news that unlike the danilo cavalcante case which lasted for about 14 days this one lasted less than 12 hours but let me tell you a little bit about what we know and how they got to this point of capturing all nine of those escaped inmates it all started around 8 p.m last night at the Abraxis academy it's about 50 miles west of where we are here in Philadelphia. It's a juvenile detention center. But Phil, importantly, it's only 15 miles west of where Cavalcante was captured uh, late last week. So a similar area, similarly on edge after learning last night that nine uh, teens basically in this facility had escaped. They're all between the ages of 15 and 17. And as you said, we learned this morning, they overpowered two female security guards they stole their keys were able to get out of the facility that way and then crawled under exterior fences to ultimately escape now the escape was much shorter than afterwards they were spotted between midnight and one trying to steal a car homeowners turned on the light they got scared off and then at 5 47 a.m they were able to catch four of the inmates and then less than an hour later after successfully stealing a pickup truck and trailer police were able to capture the remaining five. Now, of course, as we started, the comparisons to Cavalcante were brought up in a press conference with Pennsylvania State Police just recently. Take a listen to what they said.
11: I figured we'd catch these kids because they're probably not as resilient as a 30-some year old, however old he was, that knows he's going to jail for the rest of his life. I, I, I don't know if 15 to 17 year olds have the resiliency to want
14: to not have to go back. Right, the four of them got cold and banged on the door. They were done. So certainly a frightening evening as we got word of another escape. But the good news is that this one actually concluded within less than twelve hours. Phil. All
2: right, Danny Freeman for us. Thank you.
1: So this just into CNN. Hunter Biden has sued the IRS, alleging the agents of the IRS illegally released his tax information and failed to protect his privacy. Our senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polantz, joins us now. This is a really fascinating turn after the plea deal that was in part about taxes fell apart. Does he have a case here?
27: Well, Phil and Poppy, he's certainly on the offensive. Hunter Biden is going in court with this new lawsuit this morning against the IRS, specifically because there were two special agents within the IRS who became whistleblowers for Congress earlier this year. And he says that those two IRS agents who had been working on his tax investigation uh, over many years that did ultimately result in him trying to make uh, a guilty plea to a misdemeanor and then that plea deal falling apart. He's saying that those Those two agents essentially went out and did interviews at a point in time when they shouldn't have been talking about his tax returns. And his lawyers, Hunter Biden's lawyers, are alleging that they disclosed quite a lot about Hunter Biden's tax returns, uh, what he had not been paying, the tax years that were under investigation, also liability he had, some deductions he may have needed to pay. There's a lot in here based on what those two whistleblowers were doing publicly around the time that they became whistleblowers while also working for the IRS complaining about the handling of that investigation. And so now this is in the court system. A judge is going to look at it. Hunter Biden wants about a thousand dollars in damages for every time something about his tax returns uh, was disclosed when he says uh, that it was unlawfully disclosed and that his records weren't appropriately protected by the IRS because tax returns are confidential by law. We haven't gotten a uh, a statement from the attorneys for these whistleblowers yet these two special agents with the irs uh, but there are some questions about exactly what they did disclose because at the time they weren't using his name but it was very clear to everyone when they were a whistleblower when they became whistleblowers about this investigation that it was indeed about hunter biden
1: it's gonna be really interesting to see where it goes certainly an aggressive uh, legal tactic caitlin thanks for the update
2: Well, new polling this morning shows only about one third of voters think President Biden would make it through a second term if reelected. What that means for the 2024 race.
1: And California Governor Gavin Newsom says he will sign a climate bill. It would require companies to report all of their planet warming emissions. We'll discuss that ahead.
2: Well, the concerns about President Biden's age, at least among the electorate, aren't going away. According to a new CBS poll, only 34% of voters think President Biden would actually make it through a second term if re-elected. Joining us now, CNN anchor and senior political analyst John Avalon, CNN political commentator and political anchor for Spectrum News, Errol Lewis, and CNN political commentator and former Trump White House communications director, Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Um, You and I are going to litigate something at the end of this that we're ah. yeah, we're going at it on over break, but on this issue itself, like, look, to... This is point. Also during break, which I'm just going to put all that on the record, whether you guys like it or not. The president's still old. Yeah, that's not going to change. No. And so I think the question becomes is, is there something that the White House can do to mitigate this? His campaign can do to mitigate it or do they just view it, as I've sometimes been told. It's not
18: something that's top of mind for voters when you actually get into the details. It clearly is something that is top of mind with voters. Uh, The White House's job is to say that, look, it's compared to what? and look at all the things he's done, and try to turn that age into an advantage. Remember, this was a conversation around Reagan in 1984, and he deftly defanged it in a debate with Walter Mondale with a little bit of humor. Always a good and underutilized thing in our politics today. Uh, and folks got, folks got over it. Um, but but you're not going to wish this away. It's baked in the cake.
1: Over the weekend, some top Democrats coming out in support of a Biden Harris ticket. This is, of course, after the Pelosi interview with Anderson and, and Jamie Raskin as well. Sort of hesitating in terms of a full-throated endorsement of Harris on the ticket again. Let's just listen to this.
6: This is uh, Biden-Harris, a record of accomplishment up there with Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, and Kamala Harris, like the vice president. Mm-hmm. This is our ticket. We're proud of it.
0: We're all behind the Biden-Harris administration, which has delivered spectacular, remarkable
17: victories. We've been making tremendous progress under Biden-Harris, and we're all for the ticket. Vice President Harris has been a great vice president. She'll be a great running mate. She's been a tremendous partner in the things that... President Biden has been able to accomplish, which have been phenomenal. Coincidence, Errol? No, not a coincidence. Uh, somebody got a memo. Uh, somebody got a couple a of phone Biden calls. A Biden Harris
9: ticket memo.
0: Somebody, yeah, look, uh, this drumbeat, th- this idea, which actually came from the Republicans that a vote for Biden is a vote for Harris, and so let's attack Harris. And the Democrats, I think, were slow to pick up on that. And we're actually giving it a little bit of oxygen by not forcefully pushing back. So what you just saw over the weekend was them finally realizing, oh, if we don't protect uh, the the black woman on the ticket, then the base of the Democratic Party and black women vote for Democrats more faithfully than any other demographic group in the country, uh, we're going to create a bunch of problems for ourselves, as well as with Asian Americans, which she happens to be, uh, college-educated women, which she happens to be, uh, younger voters like uh, Vice President Harris. You could sort of dissolve the whole Democratic coalition just by not speaking up for your sitting vice president. So they should have done it a long time ago. But what's remarkable
24: is is obviously the age issue is an issue. 73% of Americans are concerned about it. But probably the best inoculation against is for Democrats to remind folks that Donald Trump is 77 years old. He's no spring chicken. He's not significantly younger than President Biden. Where things get complicated, because I'm going to go with John Avalon, the race is not over yet. There could still be someone other than Donald Trump. If it ends up being someone like a Nikki Haley, that is a huge problem for the Biden White House. That's somebody who's a next generation of voters in her 50s, and could litigate that we need representation for this whole country. The two biggest voting blocks are going to be millennials and Gen Z. We're not exactly represented by the octogenarian class in Washington. So that's the the one thing that could throw a real wrench in that wheel, but we're actually talking about two deeply old candidates.
2: Ready to litigate? Yeah. Tell me, okay, give me historical precedent for anyone in the history of the Republican Party, or really any party, being this far up, this close to the Iowa caucuses, with this rock solid of a base that in poll after poll after poll isn't remotely malleable or willing to openly consider anybody else
18: losing? I take your challenge and I'll answer the thing. Can be a case where you've got a candidate who's been indicted four times on on over 90 counts. It's had a huge impact on his polling. But it it will when people start thinking about electability. You've got a very fractured field that elevates him. Remember also Donald Trump, yes, he has a hardcore support. Some polls, I think Washington Post, 37% Republicans say they will support him no matter what. But that's there's a supermajority of people who are opposed to him or persuadable. And that's why I think it's disservice to where we are, because the future is unwritten, to say that this is a foregone conclusion, it's a done deal. It's not. People haven't voted yet, and they won't even start for four months.
24: Quickly, if I could say, if I were in Nikki Haley, I would pretty much put Iowa aside, which hasn't actually elected a Republican president since about 2000, I believe. You can correct me on that.
6: Ooh, focus you're all get your energy. Angry en- people on your focus social. Focus all
24: your energy on New Hampshire, where you can actually—it's an open primary—you can turn out independents um, who want to vote for Republicans, voters who don't traditionally show up in a Republican right. primary, and then South Carolina, where That's she's right. a former governor and, and popular. I'm-
0: that would be the problem. is She's polling at eighteen percent in her own state, right? And, and, and Donald Trump is at like something like forty-six percent in her state with with all of the non-Trump candidates. The problem is you can't find a state that they win uh, before Super Tuesday. Yeah. And you know, I mean, yeah. I, it is it is lovely to talk about the rules that we wish we had, but politics is about the rules that we do have. And and you know, in this primary process, Donald Trump has got a, a sort of a, a fortress that nobody has demonstrated that they have an ability to Well, track. look,
18: he, he's a fortress of the Republican Party. General election is still, and, and once the electability argument starts coming in, that's going to be a real problem. You're right about one point, which is that the RNC has not actually done a good job about making sure their proportional representation to delegates, right? It's a lot of these states are winner-take-all, where you can get that 35%, and if it's a crowded field, you take all the delegates. That's a problem with a solution that no one seems to have taken seriously.
24: Well, and by the way, the RNC is rigging this for Trump. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. There were people like uh, Congressman Will Hurd who was turned away from the previous debate because likely Republican voters and independents factored into his poll numbers. I would think if you want to win a general election, you want somebody who brings those voters. So that's also going to be a problem for the other candidates.
1: Thank you very much. This is fascinating. I'm not going to say who won in that. <laughs> I mean, at least Avalon was willing to grant that
2: I got I one thing right. I I
13: to sit next to both of you guys right. every morning. I appreciate it, guys. Thank very you. Much so.
2: Thanks, guys. All right, well, we do have some breaking news. It's just in. The American detainees set to be released from custody in Iran have now arrived at the Tehran airport and are with the, Q- the Qatari ambassador ahead of their planned flight to Doha, and then they will head to the United
1: States. All right, auto workers on strike for a fourth day as contract talks continue with the big three. Next, we'll discuss this ongoing strike with former Michigan Congressman Fred Upton. He's here.
9: More CNN This Morning to come
17: after the break. What they're fighting for fundamentally is the American dream. And so we stand with the UAW as they fight for a fair contract as they fight to benefit from the fruits of their labor.
1: So that was Democratic House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries on the ground in Michigan, who was visiting a Ford assembly plant. He marched on the picket line with UAW members on strike. Some Republicans, like former Vice President Mike Pence, also supporting the workers, but taking a different approach instead, arguing the union is, quote, pushing back rightly on the Biden administration policies encouraging electric vehicles. Listen.
2: I also think that this green agenda that is using taxpayer dollars to drive our automotive economy into electric vehicles is understandably causing great anxiety among UAW members.
1: Joining us now is former Congressman Fred Upton of Michigan. He was one of 10 House Republicans to vote for Trump's impeachment after the January 6th attacks. Congressman, I know you want me to call you Fred. I just can't do it. So, Congressman, thanks for being with us this morning. I'm so fascinated by Democrats and Republicans, many of them on the same page when it comes to supporting the UAW, but for very different reasons. Do you agree with Republicans who think that this is an opening for the party in Michigan? Maybe take that open Senate seat, which hasn't happened for a Republican since 94?
15: Well, you know, Michigan has been a purple state for a long time. We had a Republican uh, U.S. Senator, Spence Abraham. Uh, we had a Republican governor, Rick Schneider, for eight years. Uh, uh, it is uh, very much in play. Trump won it in 2016. Biden won it uh, with a better, little better margin, 154,000 votes uh, in 20. But Michigan's one of those eight states that's up for grabs, and the UAW is a pretty strong force. Yeah. Uh, that is that is for sure. And this strike, uh, you know, it's a little bit ingenious uh, that they're going after all three companies at the same time, and it's you know these rolling strikes at different a variety of different facilities. Uh, it's 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 taken notice, and I think it's going to go for a little while. And you know they they made some pretty good demands, and they've they've they're already halfway there. So if you ever compromise halfway, they've already got that. So you know that. You know, whatever the final settlement is, is going to be, it's going to be much closer to their original demand than than literally splitting the difference uh, in two.
1: Well, one, one part of the UAW demand is for 32 hours or four day yeah. work week. And that is something that the CEOs of these companies have said absolutely no way. A hard stop on that. But I thought that Senator Bernie Sanders' answer yesterday when our Jake Tapper asked him what he thought about that was really interesting. Here it is.
18: People in America are stressed out for a dozen different reasons. And that's one of the reasons why life expectancy and how a country is actually in decline. People are overwhelmed. They got to take care of their kids. They got to worry about health care. They got to worry about housing. They're worried. It seems to me that if new technology is going to make us a more productive society, the benefits should go to the workers.
1: He's talking about AI, electric vehicles, that not just the heads of the companies should benefit from that progress that the workers should too. And if it means that they can get it done in four days, not five, so be it. What do you think?
15: Well, technology is a, is a big uh, part of that process. I mean, you look at Tesla; they're they're ultimately, I think, uh, big winners on this uh, because they're non-union; they're mm-hmm. able to pay uh, less wages and they don't have the legacy costs. I mean, that's the other ingredient here: the legacy costs that the big three have uh, add. Uh, I don't know a thousand. It used to be a thousand dollars per vehicle. That's a lot of money when the average car these days is getting pretty close to about fifty thousand bucks. So. But we have a worker shortage. I mean, what business out there isn't looking for employees? Uh, uh, Whether in for my my old congressional district, we've got a lot of auto parts suppliers. Man, you drive you drive down there, they got yard signs looking looking for people, pretty decent wages that are out there. So, you know, this is going to take a little while for this strike to end. But that's that's a pretty big demand that will send uh, rippling, r- ripples through the, through the market down the line.
1: You know, it's really interesting, just sort of back to the politics of this, that the UAW head says, look, uh, presidential candidates have to earn our endorsement, right? And typically they've gotten behind Democrats. You know that well. I remember when you were on a tour a while ago with one of the UAW officials, you quipped – where's the room where they cut the check against me, right? They always <laughs> would right. fund your opponents. <laughs> but the former head of the Michigan Republican Party told Politico over the weekend, as Rahm Emanuel used to say, I'll never let a good crisis go to waste. Do you think that this could tip? Do you think the UAW could back the Republican presidential candidate?
15: Well, I think they could. And if you look, I mean, you look at what Mike Pence said this weekend, uh, you look where where Trump is and remember Trump won Michigan in large part because he took on NAFTA, he mm-hmm. said it's an unfair agreement. We can do better. And in fact, he did deliver on that. He, he delivered a bipartisan uh, approach uh, that was adopted in the Congress. Most of the Democrats voted for it. Most of the Republicans voted for it. It changed the dynamics of our trade relationship with both Mexico and Canada. And the UAW supported it. It was, it was a good thing. And d- trust me, Trump will be back, assuming that he is the, the nominee, mm-hmm. and I think that he will be. He will be all in for Michigan, trying to yeah. flip Michigan back to him from sure. from Biden and using the UAW as, uh, and what he did on trade uh, as, as one of his mainstays.
1: I want to ask you finally about this impending government shutdown, potentially 12 oh. days away. I know it can t- hear in your yeah. voice. You're yeah. not okay. sad that you're not there anymore to deal yeah. with this. But one of your fellow former Republicans in Congress, sort of of the same mindset as you on a lot of things, Adam Kinzinger, Yesterday, said on CNN, he thinks they're just going to do it. He thinks that they're going to shut down the government again. You told Jake Tapper last year um, that you're a McCarthy supporter directly. I'm a McCarthy supporter. Uh, do you support, are you a fan of how McCarthy has dealt with this so far?
15: You know... Kevin, you know, it is poison on the, on the hill. And we had a retirement uh, this last week, so the Republicans are one man short uh, further. So it's only, the difference, I think, is now four. Mm-hmm. You can't afford to lose more than four. But we don't have a deal. What I think they're trying to do is do exactly what they did on the debt ceiling. They're trying to get a, a bill passed in the House with only Republicans, and it'll be razor thin. If they pass, it, it'll be by one vote to then uh, go to some agreement with the Senate, even though the Senate is going to be a bipartisan agreement. They're going to have 70 votes to keep the vo- the, the uh, government open. Uh, pretty reasonable approach. They're, they're going to include money for Ukraine. Uh, it's going to pass big time. It'll be <laughs> the two sides. Who will blink first? If Kevin can get the votes to pass it in the House, he'll have a bill to go to conference uh, with the Senate. But the Senate may just say, Screw you. <laughs> we're gonna pass our bill, we'll send it back to you, and we'll adjourn. So the House Republicans are gonna be ultimately ending up with a bill that's pretty much along the lines of the Senate if we're able to keep the government open.
1: What what's your answer to the if? Do you agree with
15: Kinzinger? Shuts down? I think it's gonna shut down. You do. I do. I, I just I just you know, they should have stayed in August. Uh, it took six weeks to go home. They came back last week, and they couldn't even pass a defense bill, and the clock's ticking. I'm, I'm seeing it on your station. Okay. It's like yes, the seconds are ticking down. Yes, we have a big down. clock. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. like the Michigan-Ohio State game, you know, if you're at the big house.
1: Phil's laughing over
15: here. Yeah, you know, I yes. know. Not if, not if he's going to side with Michigan, I'm not. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 3 Pete, look out, Phil.
1: I don't really know what you guys are talking about, but that was a fascinating interview, former (laughs) Congressman Fred. I'll call you Fred when we say goodbye. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's
2: rude. (laughs) California Governor Gavin Newsom says he will sign a major climate disclosure bill a day after announcing a lawsuit against oil companies. In that legal complaint, the state of California states that the country's largest oil and gas companies not only contributed to the climate crisis, which has harmed the health of Californians, but that lawsuit also says oil companies deceived the public about it.
28: It can illuminate their deceit. It can illuminate their deception and their lies over the course of 50, 60, 70 years they've been lying to you.
2: Now, the bill would require any company making at least $1 billion a year to disclose their annual carbon emissions or risk being excluded from the state's huge economic market. CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins us now. And Bill, we've talked often about kind of incentives and disincentives, carrots and sticks. Is this something that's going to move the needle?
28: It could. It absolutely could. This could be a big deal. This law would require big companies from banks to oil companies to big retailers to disclose their scope one, two and three emissions. And that last one, scope three is the big one because that takes into account the entire value chain. If you're selling clothes, that's how much carbon it took to grow the cotton and then run the factories, then the dying you know, facilities and all of that. If you're a bank, that means re- disclosing a carbon footprint of all your investments, which is 700 times greater than the direct emissions from keeping the lights on Uh, down at the bank. So a lot of opposition from this, from the Chamber of Commerce, uh, from bankers uh, specifically, but companies like Apple are uh, supporting this, came out uh, behind it here. And of course, California has been on the vanguard you know, since the 70s of clean air laws, emission standards, and the com- country has been forced to keep up with that over time.
1: Yeah, that is really interesting to see Apple response. I mean, what they're doing to try to become carbon neutral, what they're doing in Texas, et cetera, and the response of big oil. What is big oil saying about this bill? What can they, how can they fight it?
28: Yeah, they're, they're opposed. You know, The American Petroleum Institute and, and the lobby of the group of this, uh, says this is way too complicated. It'll it'll cost too much uh, at the end of the day. Uh, so, but they're of course at the end of these lawsuits as well. California joining uh, almost now two dozen states, counties, cities from you know Maine to Maui suing big oil companies for deceptive uh, sales of their, of their product with hiding what they knew was hazardous to life as we know it here. Uh, so this is an interesting moment where these are the most powerful, most profitable companies in the world right now. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the trend of solar and batteries and clean energy, uh, almost 90 percent of new projects are all renewable. So we're at this cusp right now where it's sort of the end of the oil era, the beginning of something else, and a lot of fighting in between.
2: It's a fascinating, fascinating dynamic. Bill Weir, thanks, as always, my friend. Thank you, Bill. And tonight, California Governor Gavin Newsom sits down with our Dana Bash for a sweeping interview on a potential Biden-Trump rematch, the state of California, and whether he is the best bet for his party's future. It begins tonight at 9. Got to check it out.
1: A D1 player from Ohio State University medically retired from football due to his struggles with mental health, but that didn't stop him from making a difference.
29: I'm just, I'm a college kid. I've got homework. And even when it's hard, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing.
2: I'm going to tell you why Harry Miller is my champion for change.
1: That's next. Welcome back. All this week, we are bringing you stories of ordinary people who are breaking new ground, changing the way things get done and making the most of human potential. We call the series Champions for Change.
2: Now, long before I worked at CNN, I was a student athlete at Ohio State on their baseball team, very long before I worked at CNN. My champion is also an Ohio State student athlete, a football star, who abruptly hung up his cleats for good and took his private battle with depression public. Watch.
29: It seemed obvious and like a prophecy almost to be a football player. expectation was you play good football you become an all-American and then you get drafted and you make lots of money and that's what I thought I was going to do
2: I'm familiar with the scale and intensity of division 1 athletics but 20 years ago I was playing division 1 athletics on this very field in this very stadium but the level of the intensity that someone like Harry at one of the biggest football programs in the country is dealing with it's unfathomable it was 2 years ago that Harry came into your office and said I'm thinking about killing myself. What happens in that moment as a coach and as a parent? The first thing is it takes you to your knees uh, to hear someone actually
21: physically say that. And I give him so much credit for being able to verbalize that.
29: I felt like if the truth had to be told, then I might as well tell it. I think it was received well because it's an experience that a lot of people have. I'm a high achieving depressed person. I have a 4.0. I'm applying for the Rhodes and Marshall Scholarships. I was successful, but I was not healthy. And I think we're coming to a point where there's a lot of successful people who have been unhealthy for a long time. Is this what success is supposed to feel like? Because it feels awful. I think about all the student athletes uh, who have committed suicide. And I remember the thoughts that I had before the moments where I thought I would kill myself And I realized that they were thinking the same thing, that those were the last thoughts. That was it. (laughs) And it breaks my heart. It's hard when a parent says, can you please reach out to my child? I haven't heard from them. I'm just, I'm a college kid. I've got homework. And even when it's hard, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing longer plays the physical game, but he's still a
2: respected part of the team, walking among the players, helping them manage the pressures and when needed,
10: encouraging them to open up and get help. I think he, in addition to setting the blueprint for how to utilize services when you need them, in his courageousness and and sharing
13: his story, his journey really inspired a lot of student athletes around the nation. He's done such a
17: great job making sure that us players are okay with talking about our mental health. So he's with us around the team and especially helps the young guys. knows what kind of problems that they could be facing.
10: Well, I think it's one thing to offer mental health services to student athletes, but it's another thing to embed them. So not over in my office, not kind of in a stuffy setting, but really on the field, on the sidelines, increasing access to services because their schedules are so insane. He is
21: changing lives and he is changing the culture of our our entire program.
29: The whole point of me talking about anything is to not make it weird, is to to destigmatize, to make it okay to talk about.
2: I chose Harry to be my champion. First and foremost, I'm a dad. I'm a dad of four kids who's watched a mental health crisis reach epidemic proportions. And that is why Harry's story is so critically important an ability with one person to shift the status quo and entire culture around the sport of football at the highest level. He's been at the State of Union address. He's flown to
21: D.C. to have interactions with folks on Capitol Hill about federal legislation for mental health. at such a young age, he's already had such a great impact. Yet at the same time, he's still fighting some of this stuff. But he shared with me that he finds peace in helping people. And that's what he's doing now. He's got such a bright future ahead of him.
2: It's such a courageous personal story, but also such a fascinating story from the Ohio State football program. Ryan Day's father... Committed suicide at the age of eight for him. The through line from those experiences to his focus on mental health has changed a program and changed a life as well. We always want to know if you need help, please call or text 988. And of course, be sure to tune in Saturday at 8 p.m. The Champions for Change special.
1: I'm so glad you did that, Phil. OK. This is CNN
0: Breaking News.
1: Breaking news just in that plane carrying five Americans released from prison in Iran has taken off from Iran's capital of Tehran. It is headed now for Qatar. We have analysis Christiane Amapour at the table, David Sanger as well. Christiane, this is what we are waiting for all morning. The money has been transferred. The plane.
4: is out. Uh, uh, absolutely. And we're going to wait till they land in Doha and are officially transferred from Iranian custody to Qatari and then US custody. I'm sure we won't hear much before that. Obviously, they're on a plane uh, and they won't be free really to talk about it until they officially are in US custody uh, in, in Doha, where they will, uh, you know, land on this on this Qatari plane. They'll have a sort of an hour transfer, probably some quick spot health checks onto an American plane, and then back to the United States. And apparently there are US officials there in Doha waiting to accompany them. It's it's a phenomenal conclusion, hopefully, again, fingers crossed, to a very, very, very difficult and fraught situation for ordinary civilians who got caught up in this terrible political, strategic situation that Iran always takes these people in order to get money, and, and they've done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong except to be American citizens.
2: DAVID, the, THE POSTURE OF THIS ADMINISTRATION, WHEN IT COMES TO uh, WRONGFULLY DETAINED AMERICANS, THEY have seen TO BE MORE ON THEIR FRONT FOOT, DESPITE THE FRUSTRATION, WHICH yeah. WE'VE ALL REPORTED ON of THE FAMILIES AND THE TIME THAT IT HAS TAKEN. Uh, THEY'VE BEEN WILLING TO TRY THINGS THAT PERHAPS OTHER ADMINISTRATIONS WEREN'T WILLING TO DO. YOU'RE SEEING ALREADY SOME OF THE POLITICAL BLOWBACK RELATED TO uh, THE $6 BILLION, WHICH THEY SAY WILL ONLY GO TO HUMANITARIAN uh, ASSISTANCE. Why, though, in terms of their strategy when it comes to wrongfully detained Americans?
25: You know, I think they've come to the conclusion, particularly after the Russians started taking Americans, you know, as well, uh, and we've seen wrongfully detained people in China, that this is becoming a pretty standard play. And so they're both trying to get people out and prevent the, uh, these regimes from being able to have access to more Americans to grab I thought it was notable that we've heard from American officials in recent times do not go to Iran under any circumstances Mm -hmm. uh, because they're afraid that, of course, they'll try to grab some more and get some more cash out of this. But that said, it's a humanitarian win. It's not necessarily does not necessarily translate into a political win. We are not seeing this you know, move the nuclear negotiations or any other part of the yeah. relationship.
1: To, to David's point, Christian, I mean, not only are we not seeing progress that we know of on the nuclear front, there's been a rapid expansion of their nuclear program after mm-hmm. that deal fell apart. Ongoing military support for Russia this weekend, as we were talking about with you on Friday, marked one year since the, the death of Masa Ali. I mean, you look at the crackdown on political dissent in Iran. So this comes in a really interesting context
4: it does look others and David knows a lot about you know the nitty-gritty of the arms control and the and 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 that um, I don't know whether there's some kind of informal as they've said there, there's no more JcpoA apparently this administration for the moment has given up trying to renegotiate they just couldn't do it um, renegotiate the uh, the nuclear deal that President Trump took the United States and the world out of to this calamitous moment that we're at, which caused the Iranians to keep, you know, jacking up their enrichment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and pr- Trump said, oh, maximum pressure, maximum pressure is going to work. Well, it didn't. It catastrophically failed. Didn't get the hostages out. Didn't, uh, you know, do anything to change the regime. Um, I think that they may have... have, have potentially uh, halted enrichment at a certain level. I mean, you, you know more about this. They are this.
25: continuing to it, not as quickly, but I think the, the key point is just the one that Christian has made, which is, in both the case of North Korea and the case of Iran, we're in a vastly worse place today yep. than
4: we were uh,
25: when Trump President Trump came into yep. office.
4: And just one other issue, uh, you know, on the blowback for releasing these prisoners. I mean, come on. President Biden went into a deal with Putin, with whom there's, you could say we're in a proxy war to get Brittany Griner out. You know, this is a war. President Putin is at least as... as, Negative, an international player as the Iranian ayatollahs. So this is about humanitarian release of people wherever they are, Americans who are wrongfully detained, and it should be separated from anything else. And as I say, many administrations have gone through this process.
2: I, I want to bring in Becky Anderson, who's in Doha at the airport where we expect this flight uh, to land in short order. Uh, we also have Natasha Bertrand as well. Uh- but to start with what's happening on the ground there in Doha, what's your sense in terms of timing? And also, I think the role that Cutter played in all of this is a, an extremely important one uh, and how that came to be.
3: You're absolutely right. This has been a complex and very, very complicated negotiation. They have played the Qataris have played a role both in the logistics of getting these US detainees out of Tehran, and we can confirm from a from a source briefed on the situation that that flight is now wheels up from a from a an airport in Tehran, en route uh, to here, uh, an airport in Doha. That flight should take about two hours, so we should expect that flight to land on the tarmac just behind me here. About two hours from now, it's mid-afternoon Doha time now. And the other crucial role uh, that the Qataris, of course, have played in all of this is the negotiating the exchange of the Iranian prisoners uh, in the US to. Um, there are five of them, two of whom uh, will be released today, if not has been released. Some reports uh, suggesting that they, uh, the two who are coming back here have already been released and indeed may already be in Doha. No confirmation of that at uh, this end. Two others who were imprisoned in the US, uh, it's reported will be staying in the US. That is their decision. And one other will be um, moving to a third country. So Doha, of course, Qatar also involved in that exchange. And then Crucially, for the Iranians, the sort of nub of all of this is the transfer of those frozen funds from South Korea to Switzerland in the first instance and then the $6 billion worth of cash into two banks here in Doha. Six Iranian banks, as we understand it, have set up accounts with these two banks here and the $6 billion in frozen cash uh, is now uh, restricted but available to Uh, the Iranians to spend, as Washington describes it, on humanitarian goods only. So you're absolutely right to point out that the Kateries have played an absolutely strategic role in what has now been some 18 months' worth of negotiations. They started uh, with talks about uh, sort of reworking the nuclear file the nuclear talks but in the end today at least from what we understand it these talks uh, accelerated over the past months and it is all about this prisoner exchange today and the transfer of those otherwise frozen funds restricted funds into accounts here now available to the Iranian um, regime back to you guys. Becky,
1: thank you. Stand by for us. Natasha, to that point, to the six billion dollars in Iranian money that has been unfrozen essentially, but restricted by the United States. That has been the point of a lot of criticism, specifically from Republican lawmakers. Can you explain how the United States government and the Biden administration explains how they keep a check on the funds to make sure they are only used for humanitarian purposes?
23: Yeah, Poppy, Republicans have really seized on this, saying that it amounts to a ransom payment. Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham, Michael McCall, they have all issued statements (laughs) saying that this is only going to further encourage Iran to take more Americans prisoner. But the administration is pushing back on that, and they are saying that this money is not going to be going straight into Iranian coffers. It's not something that that Iran can just use to spend uh, kind of on whatever it wants, like its uh, missile development, for example, or in its (laughs) nuclear program. These are funds that are going to be closely monitored by Qatar, by the U.S. Treasury Department, and that will only be able to be dispersed uh, periodically and for humanitarian reasons like food, uh, medicine, medical supplies, agricultural devices, things that Iran and its population clearly desperately need. And that is the administration's argument here, is that they are providing this money, which is not U.S. taxpayer money, it is frozen Iranian funds that uh, were uh, uh, given to them uh, from oil sales years ago. That have been frozen in South Korean bank accounts that are now going to be uh, sent into Qatari bank accounts that Qatar will then be able to monitor and disperse uh, again with the oversight of the U.S. Treasury Department. So the U.S. is saying, look, this is the best deal that we were able to get. And obviously a less controversial part of that deal is the release of those five Iranian uh, prisoners who have been in U.S. custody, all of them convicted on nonviolent offenses or charged with nonviolent offenses, guys.
2: All right. Natasha Bertrand, thank you very much. I want to bring it back to the table. Christian, we're almost out of time. You you followed this story uh, and covered it more deeply than pretty much anybody, particularly uh, in the case of Simak Namazi. What are you thinking right now?
4: I think that he had the guts to call out and make an international global plea directed also at President Biden and the administration uh, back in March, uh, knowing that he was in a desperate state, that these, you know, obviously he has lawyers and people who are telling him, his family, that nothing is happening. You know, the negotiations for their release or the deal and this and that are not going anywhere. And so he felt he had to weigh in publicly with a plea to the administration on his behalf and the behalf of the rest of the Americans. Um in prison there. I think he's very well aware, and we spoke a little bit about this, that there are many, many other Iranians in jail who are there as a result of a crackdown by the Iranian regime. And I'm sure that, you know, this affects people who've been in that situation. But I do believe that um, for a long time, this administration did not put this front and center. So I'm very happy they did in the last few months and they got their own citizens back. Well, they are getting their own citizens back, hopefully safe and sound. But you did keep it in the context. Well, we did. I mean, I'm a journalist, and, and, and that's our job. David, with, we've got about a minute left. Mm-hmm. A U.S. official is,
2: is confirming that wheels are up. We we're, right. were here on the ground as well as they had to do.
25: For the administration, what does this mean? What does it demonstrate? Well, I mean, it, it does demonstrate, as Christian has pointed out, that they have finally focused on this and I think gotten some real results, both with Russia and now with Iran. But think about this. President Raisi of Iran is in New York right now. He just arrived for the U.N. General Assembly. President Biden is in New York right now. They will not talk. They will not meet. They will not run across each other. And that tells you a lot about just how broken the relationship is now. And until that gets solved, we're not going to solve the larger problem.
1: Well, thank you both for being with us throughout the morning on this breaking news. We here at CNN will keep you posted all day as this plane lands in Qatar. And takes off for the United States and when those Americans get home.
2: We'll be watching that and you can watch that. CNN News Central starts
1: now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.